This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. will never let the truth back some of that boards to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. Grotto of Truth Q&A number 7 Yes We had a deluge of questions Numbering Mm -hmm. around 16 But with some uh, Like two uh, two part questions uh, uh, Interspersed in there So uh, Yeah Mm. we're uh, we're splitting it up into two Yes exactly We actually have 17 questions now We realize we missed one In the first part Mm -hmm. Yeah we did miss one And it's a good one actually One that we've discussed in the past That we've uh, Yeah Debated previously Uh, Exactly Exactly Mm -hmm. It'll be good to get into So I guess You know Let's just uh, Let's just dive in Shall we Mm -hmm. Okay So So, let's start with that Missed question Yeah Uh, (laughs) Do you think There really were tunnels Under McMartin Preschool Um so I'm of two minds about this. Like, uh, it's possible that there were tunnels. The one thing that I think is quite sus that they found during the digging that they did around McMartin Preschool uh, was the pentagram plate. Have you seen that picture? Um, um, actually, that's not ringing a bell right now. But I mean, yeah, I remember I they found some kind of trash. If you look up pentagram plate underneath. McMartin on Google, the person that comes up is like a Getty Images, Getty Images, uh, picture. Oh, interesting. Of Getty the plate. Images. Yeah, which is, which is a weird plate. I mean, it's obviously that's weird. Quite okay, cool. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. I, I like that they put the Getty Images stamp like right over the pentagram like almost right next yeah. to it so that it it's just you know letting you know who and is that like a penny or something that's attached to kind of like a it's piece a of penny for or scale it's for scale okay okay the pennies for I scale see. yeah i see um, so the, it's so like a little the, almost yeah. like a little tea saucer uh, or something like that yeah but mm-hmm. it has this pentagram which you know it's hard to tell if it's well actually i don't know can we can we determine whether or not it's supposed to be held upright or no, you can't. I mean, it is. Really. I mean, it is a common way to draw a, four, a five-pointed star, and there are also like two other stars uh, in between two of the points, mm-hmm. which I don't That's know what if I was that, that is having any kind of yeah symbology to it. It could just be like a deck, but it's an odd thing to have like a drawn 
star. I mean, it is a pentagram technically. It is within a circle. It's on a plate, you know. So it is yeah. unusual, but it's not obviously definitive evidence of anything. That to me is the one weird thing they found during the dig. But uh, there was that archaeological dig that uh, I think it was Stickle. Uh, there uh, was I think Gary E. Stickle was the archaeologist mm-hmm. who did it. Yes, um, I think and, so from UCLA, yeah. right? Um, uh, yeah, Gary Stickle, um, yes, who was hired by, I think, some of the McMartin parents to uh, look into it. And I think, actually, Ted Gutterson might have been involved in that archaeological He was, uh, yes, he, he yeah. was. And they mm-hmm. claim to have found tunnels. I'm actually looking at a Los Angeles Times article from 1990 called Man-Made Tunnels at McMartin Preschool, which I believe is a like a, a kind of a letter to the editor by Ted L. Gunderson from Santa Monica, uh, <laughs> that uh, in reply to uh, the article, Parents Dig Persistently for Evidence, uh, Metro, June 5th, Jackie Magooley, uh, who I guess he dated, is paraphrased in the caption. Of that, that, that's the one who said that Ted Gunderson would talk to Aquino on the, day, uh, on the phone every day. But wow, okay. he writes, uh, Jackie Magali is paraphrased in the caption above her picture as stating she believes the pentagram on a plate found at the McMartin preschool site is among evidence of alleged satanic rituals at the school. Although it is a bizarre find, Mrs. Magali has never made this statement, not even to her closest associates. Only further research can establish this possibility. The article states that the parents and I have tried to make the public believe that a long-rumored network of underground tunnels were discovered in early June. The reporter states I offered boxes and boxes of artifacts as, quote, further proof that the preschool operators maintained and then tried to cover up a tunnel system. I have never accused the McMartins or Bucky's of this. My statements thus far have been clear and concise that the results of the excavation by the archaeologists, geologists, and their team simply proved that there were man-made tunnels under the preschool foundation, as alleged by the children. Hmm. So. Okay. You know, um, I mean, yeah. you could question the source, obviously, but okay, I'm going to come down hard because we, we've, had, we've had some lively debates over the tunnel issue mm-hmm. over the years, right? Yeah. This has been right. a, yes. something that has uh, been tunnels. a sticking point yeah, of yeah. the uh, kind mm-hmm. of satanic panic litigation. And yes. I have always been probably since, you know, I, I think I, I first really read about it in like 2014, been pretty kind of pro-tunnel. I mean, I'm not pro the tunnels you know what i mean but like, uh, pro, <laughs> yes you're pro tunnel you theory believe that there you're yeah you're convinced that there were tunnels uh mm-hmm. underneath the, the priest partly due to my yeah. anti-tunnel you know uh ideology if, if you catch my drift, yeah right fuckers. Mm-hmm. um yes. and yeah and mm-hmm. i think you i don't know i think you the the normative explanation i'm like a little de- bit uh, persuaded by the rural homeowner trash pit idea because they uh-huh. themselves admitted that they weren't able to do a more sig- substantial investigation uh, that would have yielded more information. What they did determine was that there was an area that had been filled in with different soil. Uh, and this was a rural area where like rubbish pits were a common thing. So it's definitely conceivable. Uh, I mean, they weren't able to like really explore to see if there was a tunnel network. So while possible, it also, you know, could not be tunnels. I mean, I'm not really sure. Like, I almost feel like, I wonder if McMartin is something where there were all these weird people kind of swirling around it, and I wonder if this was kind of meant to be a shitcoat situation. There were a lot of, of things around that time, like the finders and all of that stuff, and McMartin, 
is something that you know obviously gets invoked all the time to uh, as the the sort of dark uh, conclusion of the satanic panic. You know, the mo- modern day sort of Salem hysteria. So I almost wonder if this was something that was like a, a trap, uh, and uh, whether there actually was anything going on at at McMartin. Hmm. Well. I disagree. Um, <laughs> basically, um, I just okay. The the thing that I remembered about it is one that these things did seem to be hand dug tunnels that had a lot of materials in them that didn't add up with it being a. I remember they found like kind of like Disneyland like lunch boxes and weird shit like that down they found there. Like a bag, like a Disney bag, but. Uh, that kind of thing does Mm. happen you know like that uh animals like pull things underground like they found lots of stuff and in fact even the archaeologist uh diary sickle who did the report in favor of tunnels did use that explanation uh for things that did weren't consistent with his theory you know so it was just a matter of which things were pulled there by animals uh whether like it's the you know paraphernalia that's more contemporary or the paraphernalia that's uh, consistent with the time period, uh, you know, that uh, it would have been, you know, a previous owner's trash pit. Well, uh, uh, yeah, but I, I'm just, yeah, okay, there was a, okay, there was a Most of the plastic... stuff down there was dated earlier, you know, the one, the yeah, one Disney well, bag okay. and other such things, yeah. Because yeah, I'm reading, so. I'll share this with you right now, I found the article where, you know, parents dig persistently for evidence. So this is the main article that mm-hmm. Gunderson was responding to. It has a lot of the, lays out a lot of the claims. It's from 1990, and it says that they did find a Disneyland box from, let's see, yeah, they recovered a uh, dog, lamb, pig, and chicken bones, wood and tar paper, a saucer with a pentagram, and a plastic bag dated 1982 from Disneyland. The date is important, Gunderson said, because it suggests the tunnel was used during the time the preschool, which was built and opened in 1966, was operating. So, you know, the, for to believe the trash pit theory, you have to believe that all that trash was thrown in there, like, decades and decades and decades ago. But then why were there things from the 80s well the theory is that well that's that's the problem the problem is that there were mostly things from the 30s and 40s and uh you know there were a couple of things like that disney bag from uh recently and there was a mailbox from the person who owned the property from 1942 to 1972 the one thing was the disney bag that stuck out so there's two theories uh you know you could say that all the other stuff was like pulled there by rodents or that the disney bag the sandwich bag was pulled there by rodents uh which you know uh they both use this idea uh this idea of intubation or whatever or enturbation I forget what it's called but something where like, okay rodents well okay here underground yeah. Here, here's the thing, though, and I remember this is the one that really jumped, uh, where from Stickle's report, and this, this is the strongest evidence I think that some kind of 
uh, some kind of tunnel system could have been operating. So Stickle, who has a doctorate in archaeology from UCLA, said workers found numerous trenches under, around and under the school, and all but two have been explained as construction or utility related. The two are a 45-foot-long opening underneath two classrooms and a crawl space running from the school's front office to a triplex east of the preschool site. Once workers removed the debris that filled the two openings, Stickle said he concluded that the passageways were handmade. Each was about four feet high, and the opening under the two classrooms varied in width from two and a half to nine feet. At the point where the two tunnels passed under the foundation, Stickle said the foundation was, quote, even arced or arced as if someone had attempted to shape it. And, you know, Bucky's attorney said the parents are grasping at straws. So, I mean, okay, there are long utility trenches underneath the school like a basically 45 foot long opening and a crawl space running to a triplex east of the preschool site so i remember reading about this that there basically was a trench that went to i believe the property next door to them and went under that house and that was never kind of followed up on because that does sound then it's not like okay it's part of a vast tunnel system that stretches all around los angeles and, you know, it's like, you know, going underneath Area 51 and people are driving around in those little go-karts or something. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. I think even the children described it as kind of a cramped, hand-dug tunnel in a lot of cases. So that's like, yeah, that, that and, kind and of satisfies maybe. the definition a of a of tunnel. discrepancies it, about the like tunnel. It's a, it, yeah, well. Yeah, but I'm, mm-hmm, and we, as we but, talked about everything else, because then you have to kind of throw out everything else about, you know, oh, they said they saw Chuck Norris, or they saw a witch on a broom, or things like that, and saying it, it was all bullshit. But I mean, this was funded by the parents. So yes, maybe Ted Gunderson slipped in. I mean, one thing that's interesting about this article, it, it, vis-a-vis, because, you know, I don't trust Ted Gunderson, but what he said uh, is that, like, basically, yeah, Gibbons was, uh, I forget who Gibbons was. Was he, oh, Sandy Gibbons was a spokeswoman for the DA's office. She basically poo-pooed this whole thing. And they claim, district attorney investigators, uh, acting on the children's description okay one child testified during the first trial about the existence of a secret room used for molestation and he did not describe it as being underground word of the subterranean chamber came from about a dozen students none of whom were called to testify acting on their descriptions that's like 12 kids uh, the district attorney investigators surveyed the school property in the spring of 85 using special sonar equipment they took soundings both around the buildings and in the classrooms for soft spots under the foundation that might indicate soil had been disturbed or removed or that there were hollow areas consistent with talk by some children of a nine foot wide chamber so okay maybe they didn't find a nine foot wide chamber and uh they said nothing odd turned up uh the entire site was investigated and we were satisfied said gibbons but um so basically then the parents went and financed this on their own gunderson said prosecutors showed little interest fueling the belief among parents that D.A. Reiner's office, criticized for its handling of the first case and under fire again for its performance in Bucky's retrial, is not committed to the case. The level of mistrust is so high that Gunderson, who headed the Los Angeles FBI office from 1977 to 1979 before becoming a private investigator, said artifacts gathered by the parents uh, from the school site will be taken to a secret location to be studied, cataloged, and eventually dated. Now, this is critical here. Quote, we are not turning any of it over to the DA's office, Gunderson said. I don't trust them. And besides, I don't think they wanted to find tunnels. So who knows what they might do with our evidence? Gunderson is viewed with suspicion in some quarters, partly because of his longtime reputation as a maverick and because of his personal involvement 
with one of the McMartin parents, Magali. Um, she acknowledged a romantic relationship with him that predates the parents' project. And, okay, so that jumped out at me right there because Gunderson swooped in on to this parents' group and these parents... I, I mean, unless we're saying that all the parents were either deceived or delusional or kind of full of shit or they got psyoped by therapists or something, you know, I, I assume that they genuinely believe that their kids were abused and they wanted to investigate this. So that, But then they bring in Gunderson and Gunderson starts kind of doing this like sort of a like 1980s version of like QAnon shit where he's like, oh, they're the satanic pedophiles. Like, they're they're everywhere. You can't trust the DA's office. You have to give all the evidence we get. Like, we have to give it to me, and we'll take it to an undisclosed secret location. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? He says, who knows what they might do with our evidence? But, like, what did Ted Gunderson do with that evidence? Where'd it go? Mm -hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I mean, what, what happened was, with it? So, did he say what the... Oh, there was... Yeah, there was evidence, but we don't I think necessarily the, know now The Disneyland bag... Well, no, like, the Disneyland oh, bag, the, the animal Disneyland bones, like, just... bag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I right. think even just maybe, like, even the, the more detailed, like, reports that were uh, written up by the archaeologist who went there, you know, all of that stuff is instead of being... Not that... He might be right that you can't trust the DA's office, but why should they trust Ted Gunderson? And he's dating, like, the woman who is kind of leading this project. Almost like, you know, those those stories you've read about, like, British MI5 agents, like, going undercover in, like, socialist parties and, like, having children with, like, other radicals and then, like, they've been a cop the whole time. Remember there was, there was like a famous story like that yeah. years ago of like, you know, if somebody's really going undercover, like they might get deep into the job and or just get entangled up in it and everything. And then what's he doing with the evidence, you know, because it's almost like he's speaking so boldly and calling out the government and saying and with the kind of resume that he has, like, a, you know, head of the Los Angeles FBI office. Damn. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, so people trust him. So I think that it doesn't necessarily mean there weren't tunnels, but that he ran off maybe with all the evidence that maybe could have proved something or didn't. But either way, it, it didn't seem to end up going anywhere. And all the cases collapsed. And, like, then it got branded yeah. as, like, the ultimate satanic panic case. And then Oliver Stone and mm -hmm. James L. Woods, like, made a movie, like, financed by people connected to, like, the McMartin family and the Buckies that like had him basically like erming the shit out of uh, the entire satanic panic abuse, you know, uh, narrative. Uh, you know, it's almost like yeah. like Geraldo and Oprah and Ted Gunderson set it up and then they spiked it and now it can't be taken <laughs> seriously. So I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Like, like it seems like, okay, if you had a tunnel, it would be convenient. I'm just thinking like, to take children out through a little tunnel to the next property and then you could like put them into a van or something and then drive them somewhere like that actually doesn't seem like super insane like like i think people i don't know people get really hung up on like the wackiness of like secret tunnels but it's just kind of like an underground yeah like a utility trench to like get under the crawl space of the house like it might not be um and you know we always talked about like what if these kids were drugged a lot of them said they were drugged so you know they, they, things could be relative like their recollection might drugged? not be literal i believe that they that some of them did say that um yes no they said that they were drugged yes exactly yeah there were a, a lot of them said that actually mm -hmm. um like in what terms yes yeah. 
Um, let's see. Because, uh, like, um, do they know what drugs are? Like, or they just say they drank something, or, you know, uh, and they got sleepy or something like that, or what? Um, yeah. let's see. I'm, well, yeah, it would basically, yeah, but, um, I was talking about, I found this article that's probably uh, 2005 called I'm Sorry, uh, which I think is maybe <laughs> like a please execute me for lying about McMartin. Anyways, uh, it, it was about uh, Kyle Sapp uh, told and scores of other children uh, were talking about school employees who had drugged them and touched their genitals, made them play sex games in the nude, used them as models and kitty porn and forced them to watch pet rabbits, mice, and turtles being killed. Uh, by the time the trials grew, began more than three years later, many of these children's stories had grown even more bizarre. They now included being taken to local businesses or flown to faraway places to be molested in satanic rituals. Prosecutors feared that their case would be hurt by such testimony, and they dropped many children from the witness list. Others were pulled from the witness list by parents who worried about causing further psychological trauma. So ultimately, fewer than a dozen children testified at the trials of Ray Bucky and his mother, uh, Kyle was not among them. Wow. And then yeah, this article so goes on and is like, like false memories in him. This article is from Kyle. No, because he, this is different from false memories because uh, he's saying he, Kyle he made it up. Now is just saying I lied. I, like, you know, I didn't think that I had any false memories. I just lied hmm. uh, because, you know, people asked me questions until, like, you know, I knew, like, I knew what they wanted me to say. And I said what they wanted, you know. This is a weird so, article. Yeah, I'm looking through it right now. And, I mean, yeah, he's, like, saying, oh, yeah, I, I think I got the satanic details by picturing our church. We went to American Martyrs, a huge Catholic church. And, you know, I never wanted to go. And, like, they said, describe an altar. And he would describe one, like, the one in our church. Or instead of there was a priest in a green suit, I would say a man dressed in red as a cult member. Um, I don't know. Th this is... I'm not, he's saying, I'm not saying nothing happened to anyone else at McMartin school. I can't say that. I can only speak for myself. Maybe some things did happen. Maybe some kids made up stories about things that didn't really happen and eventually started believing they were telling the truth. Maybe some got scared that the teachers would get their families because they were lying, but I never forgot I was lying. My stepdad was a police officer who had guns in the house. I remember when all of this was coming down, he was put on a leave of absence from work because he was being investigated for supposedly threatening the McMartin family. He was clear to that accusation. Apparently it wasn't true. But being only nine years old at the time, I thought my dad was saying he would kill the McMartins. So in my mind, I figured no one from the school was going to dare mess with them because he would hurt them first. That made me feel secure. It could be a reason I never mixed up reality and fantasy and always knew I was lying. Wow, whoa, okay. Mm. His dad was a mm -hmm. cop. His stepdad was a cop who wanted to kill the McMartins. Like, uh, but that is, I mean, you know, maybe that is kind of, maybe that is kind of a thing where maybe it started out as people actually talking about real abuse. And then, I mean, I have seen in some of the stuff I've read about Martin before that it seems like whether it was intentional or not, that some of these investigators and therapists and things did kind of like maybe yeah. accidentally but kind of shit coat the like f like fuck up the trial by leading uh i think there was some leading in this case what's also yeah, reading all that stuff though how similar does that sound to franklin well what do you mean like what uh well okay both franklin and presidio Honestly, I mean, like the same decade, these two things were going on. And I feel like with Franklin, especially because they're older kids, 
their testimony feels much more kind of stable and compelling, but it does veer in the same kind of territory of like starting out with kind of abuse or things like that, or like these kind of like sex parties or whatever, but then getting more into like terrifying cult stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it kind of links up. Yeah. And and I mean, it's kind of like in a way, like what, they were looking for like even the fbi you know they were investigating at the time the finders you know and they put like some mcmartin stuff like in their finders file that you can now see so what people were looking for at mcmartin was based on stuff that was real they knew was happening so mm-hmm. like the fact that it corresponds with certain things you know it doesn't necessarily mean that uh you know it was true or whatever just because like you know you say like this person has a satanic cult it doesn't mean like i know there if you're lying or if that's not true it doesn't mean there's no satanic cults or like you know yeah exactly yeah so because then everybody would have had to be lying or pressured that's what there's over what 40 kids that's what martin has come to mean but yeah i mean you know it's possible like it's even possible that there were tunnels i'm just like not like a hundred percent swayed on the tunnels like there could be uh, and, like, there could be abuse or, you know, there could not have been. Both are totally possible. Uh, but, yeah, in terms of the tunnels, I just feel like because they weren't able... And it's the same thing of, like, the that kind of thing can operate on adults, too. Like, when you're expecting to find a tunnel and you find, like, something that's... You know, if you're digging under the Martin Preschool, the center of this, inner, like, this national firestorm, uh, and you find, like... A bunch of like openings like uh like curvy linear openings with that are filled in with dirt fresh soil or you know uh, different soil soil that's not uh Mm -hmm. the same as the surrounding soil you know there's a clear difference in the soil line or whatever then you're gonna be like oh my god like you know obviously you're obviously Mm -hmm. gonna be like oh my god like uh but the trash pit thing does make some sense and i think that if they were able to explore more and maybe that's you know uh part of the reason why uh or maybe that's uh, one of the reasons why we can lament yeah the fact that it didn't come together or there wasn't enough organization for further excavations but yeah it really kind of dissolved before they could to further excavate these tunnels they were pressed for time you know they had to so right now it's kind of still nebulous whether they really were there um so yeah 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 i just think uh and you know the mcmartin case was first too because it was like yeah it was like 82 83 84 this is all popping up and it was so much of a bigger deal than the presidio case and uh and franklin and or the finders for that matter another one to add to that list or the dc like callboy ring you know with craig spence like it it was the big one and so maybe it was like designed to go down and take all the other ones with it in a huge shit show of mm. like over the top uh kind of stories and stuff that first were i mean kind of pushed by very sus people like geraldo and oprah and then and even participated in by like aquino himself and then kind of control demoed and and now, you know, I'm looking at this 2005 article and it's like somebody talking about how they watched that Capturing the Freedmen's documentary and it made them realize like that that was all those guys in that movie. I don't know if you ever saw it were totally falsely blamed like in the 80s for being pedophiles. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an indictment. Uh, it was. It, I think it, it got nominated for an Oscar. I think it was one of the Jareckis did that. Um, one of the Jareckis whose dad was in Jeffrey Epstein's Black Book, but I digress. And a uh, wealthy kind of dude. And yeah, basically, but even in like the New York Times in 2004, uh, there was an article, Victims Say Film on Molesters Distorts Facts. Yeah, Andrew Jarecki directed this. He created more ambiguity, they say, than actually existed about the case, both to heighten the dramatic impact of the film and to elicit sympathy for the Freedmen's. Uh, the film tells the story of a disintegration of a seemingly average Long Island family after the father, Arnold Fr- Friedman, and his son, Jesse, were accused of molesting children in computer classes they held in the basement of their great neck home in the 1980s. And, you know, this was like a really celebrated kind of like the West Memphis three thing. It was like super celebrated mm-hmm. by Hollywood and was like and they both pled guilty to dozens of counts of child molestation in 88. And Arnold Freeman killed himself in prison. And yeah, I guess uh, then the son eventually got out. And uh, but like that just that was a good example of like how. McMartin ended up shit-coding things for, like, a couple decades, basically. Like, the next 20 years, everybody was, like, primed to celebrate anything that debunked, like, a prosecution of, like, a child abuse ring in the 80s. Like, anyone you could find where, like, they they maybe got it wrong. And, and in this case, they pretty much concocted, like, a bullshit narrative about how they didn't do it. They found, like, tons of child porn that this guy had ordered from, like, Amsterdam, like, in his place. Like, he admitted to being a pedophile but then was like oh but like i never acted on it and so you know what i mean like <laughs> it's like yeah come on, this is actually know? that reminds me of something crazy that i found while i was looking into this a little bit more uh having seen this question um because i was trying to look up that uh fbi finders file that included some mcmartin stuff about the satanic plate and things like that um, mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that I found was this article about, uh, you know, from the Tallahassee Democrat. And uh, mm-hmm. it said about the finders that there's this picture of, like, these kids with robes smeared in goat blood and everything. But uh, hold on. Where was the? Uh, yeah. OK. So the Metro Police searched two properties owned by members of the finders where they found documents, photos and a large amount of computer equipment and, quote, instructions for obtaining children for unspecified purposes, unquote. All right, and then later on in the exact same article, it says, finding no evidence of child sexual exploitation, kidnapping, or any related crimes, Metro Police dropped the case. The lifestyle of the so-called Founders Organization may differ from the societal norm, but so far the Metropolitan Police Department has not uncovered any evidence of criminal wrongdoing members of the group, Washington Police Chief Maurice Turner told the Democrat. So they found documents Mm. about how to obtain children, which allegedly included information about getting female members pregnant, buying and trading and kidnapping children. Wow. Is this was this like the Dr. Campbell Ford uh, handbook to like uh, child kidnapping? Well, yeah. But after that, they turned around like the police turned around and were like, listen, like there's like, you know, their beliefs might be different from yours, but they haven't done anything wrong or whatever. Like, why do they have these documents about like. How to like oh. trade or buy or steal a baby? <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. no, um, it's really. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's us, and I think uh, we gotta do a whole finders thing one day because they are. I think some FOIA documents or something got kind of like leaked out 
in recent years, yeah. maybe. Right, um, yeah, there was a whole uh, file about them, and it does include some McMartin stuff, so there is the idea that, like, maybe they were interesting. connected. Yeah, I'll just uh, leave it with this. Yeah. Uh, another article um, that I found from 1987, another preschool witness dead, a former police officer who once served as a defense investigator in the McMartin preschool molestation case, was found dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound, police and prosecutors said. I, I'm going to read this like the, the radio guy at the end of Smuggler's Blues. It was the second death of a witness connected with a four-year-old case. Uh, uh, you know, after the drug guy shoots him, and it's like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, local yeah. Miami businessman. Um, yeah, Paul Bynum, <laughs> thirty-nine, who was expected to testify today for who was expected to testify today for the prosecution, was found wow. dead Thursday morning in his Glendale home from a gunshot wound that was apparently self-inflicted. His body was discovered by his wife Vicky, an LAPD officer. And uh, Supreme Court Judge William Pounders told jurors that Bynum's death was, quote, not due to any criminal cause and ordered them to not speculate about it. Quote, all we know is Wait, that his body was, was found this morning. Defendant? Yes. Or, yes. Wow. No, no, no. It was, a, it was a defense investigator who was called by the prosecution to testify. And they and then in the morning he was going to testify. His wife found him dead with an apparently self-inflicted wow. gunshot wound to the head. And then the judge told the jurors that it was not due to any criminal cause and ordered them to not speculate about it. All we know is, yeah, there was a there was a gunshot. He was investigator for the McMartin defense in February 1984. On Wednesday, defense attorneys unsuccessfully tried to keep him off the witness stand, saying that as a defense investigator, Bynum shared with them an attorney-client privilege. Prosecutors were prepared to have him testify, quote, that he, Bynum, went to the site of McMartin's school, and they dug up two tortoise shells and some animal bones. Children have alleged they were sexually molested while attending the school and that defendant Raymond Bucky tortured and mutilated rabbits, turtles, and a pony at the facility to scare the children into keeping quiet. Quote, his testimony that might have been presented will be presented through other testimony and evidence later in the trial. And yeah, Bucky was charged with 79 counts of child molestation and his mother, Peg McMartin Bucky, is charged with 20 counts of child molestation and shares a conspiracy count with her son. Uh, prosecutors allege 14 children were victimized while they attended the school. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, yeah, on December 19, 1986, Judy Johnson, the first parent to allege molestation at the McMartin Preschool, was found dead in her home. The coroner's office said she died of a liver disease consistent with chronic alcoholism. So, yeah, that was those were just two people that wound up dead in very interesting mm-hmm. ways during the McMartin trial. So, I mean, that, that's very, that's almost like a... A sign. That's like Jeffrey Epstein getting hung, like in jail. It's like a kind of a yeah, signal that's, from that's whoever's behind the scenes that, like, oh, we're gonna do this on the morning that he's going to go testify. He's gonna. That's like very David Ferry kind of thing. Oh, mm-hmm. he just, uh, yeah, he had a drug overdose or something. You know, like wow. Um, so yeah, not letting him get away with this one, folks. Uh, there, and if that means being a little generous, that there may have been tunnels. I'm gonna. You know. Yeah. Well, one thing uh, about McMartin that is sus outside of the possibility of tunnels is that they had like a system of fire alarms. I mean, this doesn't again doesn't quite prove anything, but it is sus. They had a system of fire alarms, and a lot of people pointed to the fact that like they were you know too high for kids to reach, which wouldn't on its own be too like too damning because like obviously you wouldn't want kids to be able to pull the firearm, but the fire alarms didn't connect to the fire department or anything it was only an internal alarm system so wow okay what's that about? Mm. that's us yeah. that's us yeah, yeah i think that there might have been 
I think there might have been tunnels. I think they filled them in. It also <laughs> they could have been they could have been dug out of a trash pit. Like it could have originally been a trash pit, and it's like already a half dug tunnel. So why not keep digging it, and then you just fill it back up with soil and trash afterwards. And there's maybe there is some old stuff down there because that's what it was originally. You know what I mean? So like it could be both. It could have been a trash pit that um, was made into a tunnel. Yeah, like they left all of the trash down there as part of the tunnel. I mean, maybe I guess. Yeah, if you know, if, if it had been if it had been filled with trash, but then filled in with soil, then they would have dug out maybe like the amount of soil they needed to make a tunnel, but then left some of the other stuff there. I could see that happening. You know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, if it was was it deep enough though that people could have like walked over the surface of the tunnel and like not cave the tunnel in i feel like there was also some debate about that if like where would the tunnel begin and end you know like in terms of the the depth of it you know you wouldn't want somebody to be walking over your satanic tunnel and then just like the ground caves in you know it had to have be like pretty deep underground so that there would be some support. yeah i mean I, i'm reading the actual report now of the person that was hired uh by it it said that there was i believe a like a curvature uh-huh. yeah a possible tunnel feature was excavated from the toilet areas in classroom one in the office the feature was distinguished clearly by the color and compaction of the interior soil which was much darker and more loosely compacted the feature appeared to connect the area beneath the office and classrooms one and proceed eastward toward the eastern outer wall of the preschool Mr. Hobbs made a number of ancillary observations summarized as followed. The children stated they entered a tunnel from the southeast corner of room one. We dug down along the east wall of room one in the bathroom. As we followed the disturbed area south, it went under the wall into the now existing bathroom. After about six feet, it made an abrupt right turn to the east and headed for the neighboring property. The children had told two different stories about this tunnel prior to the dig. One, that they had gone through the tunnel and come up in the house next door. And two, they had come up in the garage, which blocked the house from the street. At any rate, the tunnel went in that direction. I went to the house next door and followed the walk between the school and the house, which were only about four and a half uh, feet apart. Uh... I went under the house and bellied my way towards the southwest corner of the house. After going about 20 feet, I found an area inside the west wall of the house where the floor was cut out. If I remember correctly, the area of the floor that was missing was 36 inches by 38 or 41. You could reach up and touch the bathtub, which was exposed. The plumbing in that area appeared to be quite new. I went back to the school and continued to dig. The tunnel I had been following was now headed toward the corner of the house where I had found the hole cut in the floor. I was very close to the foundation of the house. was sure so i poked a hole up through the surface the hole i punched through was about two feet beyond the west wall of the house and about one and a half feet outside the south wall this tunnel was in direct line with the cutout opening under the house in addition to the difference in soil composition the tunnel feature was distinctive from the surrounding matrix and from some other tunnel features discovered later and that it had been backfilled with earth that contained virtually no large artifacts or ecofacts it did contain numerous flecks of charcoal and carbon and pieces of plaster with green paint which the excavators hypothesized might be the remnants of the green paint that had been applied to the school in 1984-85 and possibly of the fire that had occurred within the building on april 8th 1984 oh yeah there was a fire right the maximum depth of the feature was six feet and its excavated length was over 26 feet the feature fulfilled four of the five test expectations as a tunnel lacking only a well-defined roof contour Hmm. um 
Yeah, so I guess the, the most definitive discoveries came to light through following the vein of artifactual debris from the tunnel portal <laughs> uh, under the west wall of classroom number four. An apparent tunnel signature veered southward once inside the foundation. The width and direction were clearly indicated not only by the abundance of historic artifacts contained within it, but also the soil color of the fill matrix was distinctly darker than the surrounding natural soil. The average width of the tunnel feature was greater than four and a half feet, as it extended on the diagonal completely across Unit 1 and under the concrete floor to the western edge of Unit 1. Uh, proceeding southward, the tunnel feature widened at one point to the extent that it appeared... Oh, okay. Hold up. Proceeding southward, the tunnel feature widened at one point to the extent that it appeared less tunnel-like and more like a room, maybe nine feet wide, perhaps. Also at that mm. point, a layer of plywood roofing material along with tar paper and roofing nails was found at the top of the tunnel fill material. Underneath the plywood and tar paper was a continuing abundance of bottles, wood, and other debris. It became obvious that this densely packed debris-filled area was quite large in relation to the tunnel passage previously described. This room-like feature extended southward to the area under the doorway to classroom four and the sidewalk corridor beyond and it, you know they thought that the layer of plywood and tar paper may have served as a kind of roof for the room life like portion of the feature continued in an arc to the east across the east side of the southeast corner of trench unit one uh, there were ob obvious soil color and density demarcation lines at the roof floor and sides the overburden of soil forming the existing roof of the tunnel at that point was 22 inches thick measuring from between the bottom of the concrete floor and the demarcation of the former tunnel cavity so i think that's basically okay so 22 inches is your answer i guess so about a foot and a half or something. The walls of this wider area yeah. bore shovel mark scars. These scars indicated the tunnel had been dug out with hand tools rather than mechanized equipment. The depth of the tunnel in the room-like area was a little more than six feet, eight inches, which would have permitted most adult males to stand upright. In contrast, the depth of the tunnel in the passageway leading up to the room-like feature was more shallow at an average of five foot 11, which would have required most adult males to bend over when walking through the passageway. A major artifact was found buried within the room-like feature an intact rural roadside style mailbox this mailbox had the name and address of the last occupants of the house that stood on the adjacent lot until it was torn down in 1972 the tunnel direction changed dramatically beyond the room-like area turning to a dog leg headed acutely eastward a crucial dilemma was imminent at this point with only two days left to complete all excavation there was not time to both explore the full dimensions of the possible room and to follow the ultimate extent of the tunnel all Although important data may well have been missed by not fully exploring the room, it was considered more important at the time to redirect full effort to explore the tunnel. It was hoped that the more the tunnel feature could be defined, the more possibilities there would be for making correlations with the eyewitness reports of the children. And as they dug the tunnel fill eastward, it became apparent that the line of the tunnel continued across classroom four. In, it, into the cut through the uh, floor at unit one. The width of the tunnel was still about three feet. The height of the tunnel feature was unlike the room area, returning to the five foot 11 average height of the Western passageway. Some boards and a few tin cans were still found in the tunnel within, within unit two, but they petered out until no more major artifact inclusions were encountered beyond about three fourths of the way across the unit. So, yeah, I mean, it keeps going, but, uh, okay, I'll just read the conclusion, uh, basically, to this, because I feel, I'm feeling vindicated right now. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
The project determined the existence of two extensive tunnel complexes beneath the concrete floor of the McMartin Preschool building. One toward the south was consistent with the location and function described by children. It appeared to connect the interior of the preschool with the adjoining triplex structure, and it had a distinct signature where it exited under the foundation of the east wall. Since it lacked datable artifacts and a consistent demarcation of floor profile, it was classified conservatively as a, quote, possible tunnel. The feature that conformed scientifically to the predetermined attributes, uh, attributes as a tunnel was the complex on the north. This tunnel feature was clearly distinguished from the other subsurface features encountered during our excavations at the site. The northern tunnel feature conformed to virtually all the test expectations as follows. One, an identified entrance. Two, the architecture was both linear and slightly curvilinear. Three, the architecture was large enough for adult human passage. Four, there were characteristic scars indicating it had been dug by hand. Five, the feature had a compacted dirt floor. Six, the tunnel was found not open. Seven, the tunnel had been completely artificially filled with uh, filled in with fill, which was distinguishable on the basis of color, texture, and compaction from the original soil deposit at the site. Eight, the fill contained inclusions in the form of a large number of artifacts. And nine, the probabilistic dating of the tunnel can be estimated by recovered artifacts. And therefore, uh, yeah, I guess uh, the following seven factors determine probable age. First, it is unlikely that the bright stainless steel straps had been placed on the pipe in 1966 when the structure was built. Second, the placement of the mailbox most probably dates to the time following the destruction of the neighboring house in 72. Third, the Disney bag is a date of 1983, which indicates that the tunnel fill dates to that time or thereafter. Fourth, the arching of the foundation precisely over the tunnel was obviously a feature made to accommodate the tunnel, and there was no other conceivable scenario to account for it. Fifth, the four large containers which were placed by hand into the tunnel fill indicate the use of the tunnel after the preschool was built. Given their positions under the foundation, there is no possibility that they would not have been knocked out of place and their intact glass bottle and jar contents broken when the trench was excavated in 1966 for the pouring of the concrete foundation. Six, the ceiling of the tunnel was simply too shallow to have withstood human foot traffic on it on an unprotected state. If the tunnel feature had existed prior to the construction of the preschool, its covering a roof would have been so shallow that a person walking on the surface would have easily caved it in, thus exposing the tunnel. Finally, the soil deposit at this part of the property had been put into place and compacted at the time of the building construction. Therefore, any holes or openings found in that area extending up to or near the surface would necessarily date to a time after 1966. Therefore, given the evidence of the seven factors above, the time and construction of the tunnel uh, and use of the tunnel post-dates 1966. I'm just going to leave it at that. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff in the tunnel, like, for instance, the mailbox... Like, why would the earlier person's mailbox have been in a tunnel? And also, like, maybe it was just filled in previously. Maybe they were filled in trash. Okay, okay. Um, hold know, on. I think you're like, missing the forest, like, for the tunnels here. Like, there, there was an extensive tunnel system that led to an opening in the house next door, both in the garage and where there was a bathtub covering it, that if you moved aside, there was basically a hole and that hadn't been, I guess, uh, patched up or filled in was and one to the garage hole? where you, yeah, that's what he said. That's what he so said like about the bathtub. Hole? Yeah. That was what I remembered reading years ago that basically like tunnel pilled me completely was that this is too extensive. What they're talking about and the way it was constructed is not a trash pit. This is a tunnel. This is at least a local tunnel system on this property. And he even said they ran out of time and were not able to go further and explore the ultimate extent of the tunnel. So, like, that, I feel like this blows out of the water the idea that it was just, it might have started as a trash pit, 
and they certainly put a bunch of trash. Somebody put a bunch of trash in there. There's tons of trash. But this in is it. yeah. Like, what about the room that is like six foot eight and nine feet wide? You know what I mean? Like, why is there a room? Why does it go to the next property? If it goes to the next property, that satis- that means that it sounds like what the kids were. The kids even said that they were taken to the house, like a tunnel to the house next door. And that's exactly what he found. And, you know, if you're trying to, like, traffic children to a third location, you bring them up through the tunnel in the garage, you pull a car in there, you put them in the car, and then you leave, and nobody ever sees anything. Um, I think that's tremendously convincing. I think that, you know, I mean, this this is like a expert, like a tunnel expert, saying that, like, every aspect of it is tunnel-y. And, like, yeah, basically... Yeah, but other people have examined it, like, in retrospect. Oh, other and, like, people. when you're, you know, yeah, other archaeologists... I don't know. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, it is, it is possible. Like, you know, I'm not saying there wasn't necessarily, there might not, there, there might have been a tunnel, but I, you know, most of the debris they found is from like the thirties and the forties. And like, they found like that person's, you know, like it could be a series of trash pits, but it also could be a tunnel. It could be a tunnel, you know, it, it could have been, the trash could have been they, there. Know, the trash could have been there all along it also things could have been i mean if yeah if like the mailbox of the old place was there they might have just they might have used it as a trash pit like up until you know like basically yeah like it might have just been a big hole that had a bunch of crap thrown in it over the years and they didn't necessarily take all the crap out when they built their tunnel system but it appears that somebody somebody did something underneath this preschool and constructed a, like roofs and it had curvature and it had, you know, a linear it like it, it like winds. It's like 40 feet long. You know, these are like long passages like like at one point. Does it stop being a trash pit? You know, I figure a trash pit is more of like a maybe a square or rectangular uh, or a circular yeah, well, kind, but of, kind of thing. Not like a like bunch you, of long once hallways. Once the trash pit is filled. Well, once the trash pit is filled, you would dig another trash pit next to it. You know, once you uh, fill it up with trash, sounds... then you fill it in with soil, and then you dig another trash pit adjoining. So, you know, I, show me uh, like a an expert archaeologist, like like it going in on the theory of trash pits that like completely well, lines up is, with like what this guy found. Uh, Otherwise, well, there there is one which is you know about review and a behavioral analysis of the tunnels found. I don't know if you've read this, but you know what? I'm a behavioral not sure analysis. If, Yes, and it's a sort of reappraisal of the tunnels in a, in a possible trash pit mode. Who wrote this? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um, W. Joseph Wyatt of Marshall University. What was under the McMartin Preschool in uh, uh, yes. 2011? Or t- 2002? Okay, yeah. all right. We'll, we'll be fair. We'll be fair to the, uh, the anti-tunnel you know tunnel crowd out here um mm-hmm. i mean you know it could be well i don't, I don't know what the behavior is supposed to social responsibility you know that seems like a sus journal title but you know i think that he the puts tunnels in idea, quotes <laughs> yeah well you know he's anti-tunnel so hmm, i'm reading his abstract hardcore right now. anti-tunnel wow a theoretical functional analysis of the variables that may have accounted for the archaeologist's evident misinterpretation is presented um okay like okay you're just gonna do like a theory brain like weird psychological functional analysis of something like uh okay i don't know have you read that maybe we'll yes i have it's uh you know based on the idea of operant seeing which is just that if you expect to see something like i said you know 
if you saw under the McMartin preschool, if anybody saw under the McMartin preschool at the time, like anything that like was a long trench that had like different soil around it filled in, then you would say that that was a tunnel. Like there's no um, way. No, but like, that's you like, that, like you're oh talking about God. an archaeologist who you was know. hired to get to the bottom of something and not, you know, basically use well, their yeah, professional well, he judgment. Well, yeah, hired to get to the bottom of the, th- you know, it's the same thing. Like, uh, and he found something that basically, according to his professional opinion, absolutely resembled a system of hand dug tunnels underneath the property that, like, may or may not have originally started out as a trash pit. 50 years ago but had definitely been modified after 1966 when i think a pretty good example of like the sort of uh confirmatory bias that some of that does have uh you know just to uh i mean obviously there is like for the parents i'm sure they they were convinced but it's like the the evidence that he's putting up isn't just like it, it he's backing it up with like actual with like facts and logic uh basically you know like he's offering up like a cogent uh opinion based on his professional expertise that like this is what the scientific community classifies as a tunnel and so here are the things that i found that absolutely match the characteristics of a tunnel and it was really long and it had rooms and all this other shit so like it basically the the story of it just being a trash pit like does not add it's not like him just like oh i want it looks vaguely like a tunnel and i'm dumb so like i'm just gonna go with you know what i mean like like yeah i don't know that's like a big I leap mean, to say that he wasn't thinking rationally and he just wanted to say there were tunnels like maybe but i don't see reading the report it doesn't sound like he's making leaps in that kind of way well one thing that definitely comes out to me as a leap is the idea that like you know the tunnel had to have been built recently because the roof would have been so shallow that if it had existed previously then it would have caved in so that to me like is a big leap because that's pretty much assuming the foregone conclusion that's a tunnel when if it were to be something else that had been filled in previously then that wouldn't have been an issue because there wouldn't be a roof. It would be a filled-in trash pit. That's an example of something that jumps out to me as, like, a possible leap, you know? But I get okay, it, you okay. know? Uh, but, I mean, if you've you also know, I, followed that logic, if somebody was to empty out that trash pit and then build a tunnel, they would have to build some kind of roof structure to support it. Yeah, they would if they did that. Yeah, if they did that. But then, you know, I mean, what's right. the explanation for the roof structure, but the, I guess, absent well, that? Well, there wasn't, like, a, well, what, what was the roof structure? There was only or there a, was a layer. A I mean, there was a kind of, yeah, there was, a, there was kind of a, a, the layer of, like, plywood and, uh, like, tar paper or whatever that was kind of um Well, they constituted found, like, plywood roof. and roofing materials, right, that they were found, like, you know, in the quote-unquote tunnel fill material but that also could have been trash i think it was more extensive than that it had you know contained one yeah unit three under classroom three contained the intriguing remains of wood posts they were found in situ still in upright positions both posts were the remain of four by four timbers the first one had been burnt the second one was more intact and only slightly burnt they seemed to be spaced uh, at regular intervals due to their relationship parallel to the east wall um, 
extending from north to south in classroom three. They may have been part of a shoring system for an underground passageway, but there's no longer any time to explore for corroborative evidence. So, I mean, yeah, he, I mean, he's not saying that, like, he's not making these leaps in this of saying, like, absolutely, like, confirmed tunnel, but he's saying, like, they may have been part of this kind of system. He's exploring this hypothesis and, but like not coming down on it and saying like, cause he doesn't have yeah, like this the is, literal this is the part concrete about the plywood and the roofing materials, uh, a layer of plywood roofing material along with tar paper and roofing nails was found at the top of the tunnel fill material underneath the plywood and tar paper was a continuing abundance of bottles, wood and other debris. Uh, you know, so why was it just filled with all this debris? Like, it's not just like normal fill dirt. Like, it's, like, that you would just get a bunch of filter and it happens to be filled with, like, bottles and, like, all this trash. Like, why? Maybe if you were trying to make it look like a trash pit. Yeah, okay, I guess. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, sure. Why wouldn't they try to make it look like a damn trash pit? Of course, you know? Like, it makes perfect sense that they would try to do that. I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not willing to give them, like, the benefit of the doubt. Like, why is there a gigantic room? Why does it go to the next property with a hole over a bathtub? and the fucking garage like it's and then why is everyone dying during this case why did it get shit coded and like create the whole satanic panic narrative like it's all too sus and the fact that well like there's a lot wrong with the mcmartin case but i think that panic narrative like why would they choose something that like you know had actual tunnels there (laughs) You know, like, that's, you know, my thing. Like, why? Well, you know, they didn't... It it was hard for them to get... It's not like they just got to go and check out if there were tunnels. Like, this is kind of a difficult thing to do. I mean, they did, like, demolish the whole school, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like, they... Yeah, was, and the Presidio you know, daycare caught on fire twice uh, on the like yeah. the fall solstice on Val- Valpurgis knocked. Um, so you know sometimes <laughs> these things just happen. Um, it's, I think Valpurgis knot is not the well. For one, there is no fall solstice. It's an alternate. Oh, you're right. So yeah, and autumnal. Spring. You're right. It, w- it was set on fire in the uh, autumnal equinox, if I recall correctly. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I mean, I think uh, it's still. I guess we're we're both still dug in. So I guess we'll have to explore it further and really, you know. I'm not as as, uh, dug in on no tunnels as you are on there were tunnels. Uh, I'm just like a little bit skeptical. Yeah, dug in. Uh, I'm just a little bit skeptical. Like uh, I can see the counter argument, but like I I do see aspects of the counter argument and the whole thing, you know, yeah, Ted Gunderson to me is is pretty sus. The whole thing is like the way that it just became this huge cause, cause celeb. It's very possible that there's something around with McMartin. It's true. Like, you know, maybe we can relitigate that uh, further at another time. But I don't know. Yeah. Again, I'm not as I'm not as dug in, but I do. Mm-hmm. I do see uh, some of the reason in the in the tunnel skepticism. Uh, but, you know, there mm-hmm. is some good tunnel evidence. The hole in the bathtub, you know, I don't know what. That's pretty. It never gets talked about. Nobody ever talks head. about it going to the next property. I feel like that's the most damning thing for me. Because also, if it's a trash pit for one property, why would it go to the next property? It seems that seems well, like another yeah, unlikely I don't thing. Know. Maybe if the property had could maybe it used if the, to be one the property. property. Continued. It used to be one property. Yeah, I don't quite know, but uh, or yeah, I'm not sure. Like what the nature. Like you know, why would there be? a portal into the tunnel that they had left open, you know, if they were going through all the trouble of, like, disguising it as a trash pit, you know, a lot of it doesn't quite add up, uh, that this was just, like, a missing access point that they just left, 
uh, I guess that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, at a certain point, I, th- that is a little, that does stick out a little bit as like odd. Like who owned, I don't actually know who owned this house next door to them and what their kind of deal was where presumably they let this guy or the house was abandoned or something. Like they let this guy like walk into their house and like look around for and move stuff around and look for openings and things like that. Um, yeah. I, I guess they got permission well, to do been, it. Yeah, it must have not been in use or yeah it was or maybe they sold maybe the people that were there like sold it and moved away so somebody else was living there it's it but it is a little odd that like whoever was involved in those tunnels or whatever why wouldn't they attempt to come why wouldn't they attempt to like fill that in better and not make it more obvious unless i don't know it's like like maybe like fussing with it too much would leave more evidence that you were fussing with it and building a tunnel and like covering up a tunnel so like in a way like just leaving it in kind of this weird like ambiguous state like there's, there's a lot you know it's like a, there's know. a bit of dracularity <laughs> in, this, in this tunnel like i don't know it's like is it is it a trash but is it filled with dirt you know it's, I mean, it's uh, and then they didn't, they didn't really have enough time it's filled with dirt we can definitely both yeah, agree well, that it, it's filled with dirt it was filled with dirt but but when and the question yeah, is when whom. it was filled with dirt yes and by yes whom. Yes. yes and i guess uh we'll have to dig into it What's more if- one day uh uh, yeah. to, we'll have to actually literally go there ourselves and do another dig through the tunnels uh, in order to settle. Right? Yeah. I wonder what if anything's what on find. the property now. Exactly. Just yeah. go with the little like metal detector thing. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Get a good hour of that out of that question. Yeah. Out of that question. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, in what may become one of the biggest child molesting cases ever on record. Seven nursery school teachers were arraigned today on more than 100 counts of child molestation. The accused include the preschool owner, 76-year-old Virginia McMartin, her daughter, and two grandchildren. Finding out just what happened to the McMartin preschoolers in Manhattan Beach, California, would spark a national media obsession. A case which has shocked much of Southern California and caused a lot of parents to worry about the safety of their children. Setting off a panic around the country. In alarming numbers, preschoolers have been exploited. Could it be your child? The media blitz demonstrated unstinting belief that this had happened. It was sensational and lurid and seem to always be expanding. 1,400 children in this community have been ritualistically abused. But were they? Decades that was later, a doozy. Well, we're going we're gonna to yeah. power through these. So we got Push number on. nine here. Let's go. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to power through it. Keep digging. Mm-hmm. So number nine is from Not Fox Mulder, and they ask, you guys got any leads on sci-fi writer Robert Heinlein? Beyond his naval background and the fact that Starship Troopers is still on the U.S. military's reading list, he was involved in Edgar, Edgar Mitchell's Institute of Noetic Sciences, which no doubt had connections to SRI and the put-off Swan Geller stuff. Also had some free love views I haven't looked into and some sketchy views on race that I haven't looked into. So, yeah, he, he's come up before. Before I think he came yeah. up in weird scenes inside the canyon. And right. maybe even during a uh, land. Uh, yes, yeah. he did, which I guess was very influential. I'm I don't want to get this wrong, but I, I feel like it was very influential in like the Laurel Canyon scene. Maybe it was also influential yeah. in mm-hmm, the sixties so. hippie, like San Francisco Palo Alto kind of milieu. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it is one of those things that I think counterculture people still would reference it as like this very far out, like cool, yeah. you know. I don't know, sci-fi thing, but I think that had like a very hyper libertarian 
kind of ethos to it, Stranger in a Strange Land. And, you know, Starship Troopers is like, I don't know, I, I'm kind of torn. It's almost had a bit of a cult revival in, like, recent years mm-hmm. with the movie. And yeah. I like that movie. It was definitely aimed, I was, like, probably, like, 13 or something when it came out. But, I mean, I always yeah. liked it. I think it is funny. Uh, I mean, I like Paul Verhoeven's kind of vibe of... Uh, this like goofy sort of you know making fun of kind of like a fascist dystopia future kind of thing um Mm -hmm. and uh and but i mean i guess it's still that not that novel is a little bit kind of fashy in a way i mean Mm -hmm. it's i think i haven't read the book but and it's weird that it's on the u.s military's reading list that's actually really sus and it actually is okay it even is kind of wait a minute yeah you're right it's kind of a predictive programming movie. You have to add it to the Dracularity of 9-11 because it's kind of a... It, it came out, what, yeah, in like to 99 maybe? Mm-hmm. It was one of those uh, late 90s when movies. When did the movie come out? Yeah, I think 99 might be right. Uh, I had to look it up, though, because I don't... Yeah, oh, wow, 97. Uh, I forgot it was that early. 97, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 97. So... You know, I think that uh, that obvious. The parallels are pretty obvious. Like, I, I I always thought it was like funny in the movie that they all live in Buenos Aires, but they're all just like the yeah, most like white. Right. Bur- <laughs> they're incredibly mm-hmm. like Casper Van Dien is like a looks like almost like a genetically modified like Ubermensch. Uh, Johnny Rico. I mean, some Argentinians might get mad at you for saying that they're not already uh, white because they. they <laughs> no, you're Argentinians right. Argentinians are pretty white, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess this could be, yeah, kind of the weird, like, um, you know, futuristic, like all the like the white sort of ruling class of Argentina, but they all act like Americans, which is funny. Um, so it's like all mm, part of yeah. some kind of like fascist, like no, like World American. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then the, and then Buenos Aires gets hit with an asteroid that is somehow like sent like launched from this bug planet and of course the bugs are kind of like the ultimate absurdist metaphor for like the swarthy other in you know mm-hmm. that basically only can be exterminated and of course you know yeah the the, the movie and i assume the book um actually yeah no I, I see this that actually paul verhoeven and the screenwriter edward newmeyer they actually were attempting to satirize what Verhoeven saw as the fascist aspects of the novel. So I guess the novel was just more straight up fascist yeah. and like, look, ooh, this cool story about like killing bugs. And so he kind of made <laughs> it as like a kind of, he flipped it on its head a little bit. So you know what, for that, I respect Paul Verhoeven because it is super fascist. Like, I mean, the idea of the things in, that are in the Starship, Starship Troopers movie being in the book, but not ironic is kind of a funny thing to think about. Yeah, the actual book itself is sort of a pay on to at least like, you know, the the troops, the Mm -hmm. like the troops in the book like are it's not really a satire, the book itself. It's more uh, like a manifesto, like the Turner Diaries. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Mm hmm. This is an interesting little tidbit. Uh, apparently, that the arachnids are uh, some have speculated that they're a uh, analog for communists because they are, uh, you know, communal in nature. Yes, they have like a yeah. And they have bug telepathic. society is actually in the book uh, described as communist at one point. Oh my god! Yeah, I guess it was literally. It was absolutely a metaphor for like the Cold War and communism, but on the side of. Like, wouldn't it be badass if we went and exterminated all these bugs, all these godless communist bugs, you know, that are, you know, plotting our downfall. And I mean, this guy, he created I I actually didn't. Yeah, it'd be interesting to do a deeper dive in him. I always knew he was sus. He hung out with a lot of the same like California 
sci-fi crowd that I think we talked about with Jimmy Fallon Gong, like the kind of Esalen adjacent people, like Arthur C. Clarke and, uh, and, you know, probably Walter Breen. I bet they knew each other. And they, he was a fanatical anti-communist, graduated from the Naval Academy in 1929. And he was like a huge advocate of nuclear weapons testing. He even created something called the Patrick Henry League with his wife um, in an attempt to create support for the U.S. nuclear testing program. That was, I think, up until 1980. (laughs) He was talking about doing more nuclear weapons testing. Yikes. Hmm, Cool. This is really... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, this guy sounds like a fascist. It sounds like an American fascist who is just super, all the groovy counterculture people just thought was, like, totally far out, man. It's really funny to think about, like, you know, sort of ostensibly, like, left-wing counterculture people in, like, San Francisco, like, yes. totally standing this guy. It's just like, wow, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, stranger in a strange land is also a bit sus. I remember that, you know, that's where the phrase grokking comes from, which maybe you hear oh, uh, sometimes out in California. That's really? The idea I did not know that. Yes. I that That's like an, yeah, that's like one of my, you know, MK trigger words. I think when like a Vox journalist or something was like, you know, yes, it's really just I hard agree. to grok what's going on. I hate it when people White say House. grok. Yeah. Ugh, I hate it. I really hate it. Wow. So he came up yes. with that. So that's cool. Uh, yes, he came up with that. Yeah, grokking is like understanding, I guess. And uh, this is uh, a funny passage from the Wikipedia summary of Stranger to Strange Land. Smith continues to demonstrate psychic abilities, the alien in question, mm-hmm. and superhuman intelligence coupled with childlike naivete. Uh, when Harshaw tries to explain religion to him, Smith understands the concept of God only as one who groks, which includes every extant organism. That leads him to express the Martian concept of life as the phrase thou art god although he knows that to be a bad translation wow thou mm. art god the classic okay Great oh idea. you know what yes that, yeah there, there's all kinds of wacky interlocks here i guess he might have even been involved in some larushi victory shenanigans i'm seeing here in 1980 he was a member of the citizens advisory council on national space policy which met at the home of science fiction writer larry niven to write space policy papers for the incoming reagan administration members included such aerospace industry leaders as former astronaut buzz aldrin um aldrin lied folks i'm sorry but anyways uh i think we have a question for next month (laughs) we won't get into that (laughs) general daniel o graham aerospace engineer max hunter and north american rockwell vp for space shuttle development george merrick Policy recommendations from the council included ballistic missile defense concepts, which were later transformed into what was called the Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, as derided by Senator Ted Kennedy. Highland assisted with council contribution to the Reagan Star Wars speech of spring 1983. Wow, so he, like, helped write Reagan's Star Wars speech. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Amazing. Um, wow, LaRouche. Uh, coming for LaRouche's, you know, greatest achievement right there. Yeah, wow. Unless he was hanging out with Um, those people, too. Yes. Actually, you know, I didn't realize how incredibly sus Stranger to Strangeland was, because I completely forgotten, like, the plot. So, eventually, the Martian founds a Church of All Worlds that Uh combines the Fosterite cult, especially the sexual aspects, uh, which, you know, uh, basically, it's a populist megachurch in which sexuality, gambling, alcohol consumption, and similar activities are allowed and even encouraged and considered sinning only when they are not under church auspices. So we, the Martian combines elements of that with Western esotericism. 
uh, and the members of the religion learn the Martian language and thus acquire the ability to truly grok the nature of reality, granting them psychokinesis. Eventually, the church is besieged by Fosterites for blasphemy, uh, and the church building is destroyed, but unknown to the public, Smith's followers teleport to safety. Huh. Smith um. is arrested by the police, but escapes and returns to his followers, later explaining to Jubal that his gigantic fortune has been bequeathed to the church. With that wealth and their new abilities, church members will be able to reorganize human societies and cultures. Eventually, those who cannot or will not learn Smith's methods will die out, leaving Homo Superior. That, incidentally, may save Earth from eventual destruction by the Martians, who are responsible for the destruction of the fifth planet aeons ago, resulting in the asteroid belt. Phaeton. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, uh. um, it's also implied at the end that Smith was an incarnation of the Archangel Michael, or a different Archangel. Oh uh wow wow it's amazing how well regarded this guy is and how like revered he is for like how sus his politics are i mean uh it sounds like it also sounds like he's creating like he's talking about like the grateful dead or something like yeah uh, all kinds of you know when you go to the dead show like all kinds of uh you know indulgences and libertinistic behavior is allowed to be unleashed and they're mixing like Western esotericism with yeah I don't know, it's uh yep. weird, very weird, yeah, yeah. So I think maybe we'll we'll add him to the list because I, yeah I didn't realize he was like he, he was in like policy circles in the eighties. Yeah, I mean he's Star a super Wars. influential sci-fi writer. Like that book, Stranger in a Strange Land, I remember was like the number one like recommended sci-fi book like when I was a kid that people would always encourage you to read if you I think some people yeah some people have called it the bible of the American counterculture in the 1960s Mm, wow I'm trying to remember exactly like yeah who was who were the ones who who were like the kind of famous people that were yeah like like really really obsessed with it but I think it's it's kind of every sus person you can imagine oh okay yeah uh Ronald Reagan admired him and so did Charles Manson Charles Manson uh, who was captured with the novel Stranger in a Strange Land in his backpack. He predicted the European Union and invented the waterbed. Wow, he invented the waterbed. That's a, I'm just reading from a, yeah, like a LA Times article about him. I guess he is kind of a, uh, kind of a polarizing sci-fi person. Um, but let's see. Yeah, somebody said, here at the story, actively resist promoting him because he was a fascist, said Charles Houther, <laughs> the science fiction buyer at Skylight Books. Uh, people don't seem to talk about him anymore. I haven't had a conversation about Heinlein in a long time. Still, hardcore admirers remain. David Silver, the Venice-based president of the 800-member Heinlein Society, discovered the author's work as a boy in the 50s in a gifted children program. No, I'm just kidding. And said he rereads about four <laughs> dozen of Heinlein's books every year. Okay, sounds the sus, but his following shows up in unexpected places. He's the hero of numerous astronauts, Silicon Valley types, and those seeking to privatize space travel. He isn't just their favorite writer. He set them on their life's course. He generated public enthusiasm for the space race, inspired the genre called military science fiction. Tom Clancy, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, and countless libertarians are fans. A crater on Mars is named for him. And, yeah, I guess, uh, let me see, da, da, da. yeah, he was in L.A. and Santa Cruz most of the time. He actually campaigned for Upton Sinclair uh, for governor in the 30s, who was, you know, a socialist. So, 
Uh, I don't know if this, this is another uh, Trotsky to Fash Pipeline kind of thing going on, but a lot of more, you know, progressive sci-fi authors kind of hate him. Yeah, even Stranger with its countercultural following and endless debates about alternative sexuality, it's one of the several of his books to dramatize group marriages, enrages feminists these days. It's like the sexist model of hippie life. We're all liberated, but the women still get the coffee. That definitely resonates with, like, the Jimmy Page groupie kind of, yeah. oh, we're so liberated, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he apparently was really into Uspensky, uh, you know, Gurdjieff's oh. uh, sort of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, this cycle. is the one. I, rem um, I remember the, the one that I, I remember reading about a lot is The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. That was yeah. apparently very kind of influential, and that's about, like, a worker's revolt on the moon right it was written in 1966 yeah. right at the because dawn the base, of like yeah the base libertarians like rebel on the moon right yeah yeah it's it's basically yeah, yeah. it's like a kind of like an ayn rand but sci-fi sort of thing about yeah, a libertarian they, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch which you know no nope. yeah moon people yeah exactly yeah where the loony and it, but but it's also you know i think it was kind of perceived as like uh basically a kind of almost like automated like virtual anarchist utopia it's kind of like you know like a based like new america that like declares independence from like the stupid earth with their you know mm -hmm. being yeah yeah exactly so, and yeah. you know it's a there's a lot of like a kind of i don't know revolutionary or perhaps counter-revolutionary uh like cons conspiring like clandestine networks and covert cells that are run by, I guess, like, the main guy who, you know, uh, launches this kind of, like, this putsch or this coup, uh, you know? So, um, yeah, he's kind of... he And actually, it, going with a lot of things, yeah, that we've talked about recently, Lunar Society is portrayed as akin to that of the Old West, tempered by the closeness of death, by exposure to vacuum, and by the shortage of women. Because the sex ratio is about two men to each woman, the result is a society where women have a great deal of power, and any man who offends or touches a woman uninvited is likely to be attacked and eliminated through the nearest airlock. Marriages tend to be polyandrous, including group marriages, and, you know, antisocial individuals were selectively eliminated and i don't know there's something that put people out of the airlock i guess they're bad and then there's an unregulated free market it fucking rules um and i guess uh, this is also bizarre i guess it's also in stranger in a strange land where a band of social revolutionaries form a secretive and hierarchical organization. In this respect, the revolution is more reminiscent of the Bolshevik October Revolution than the American, and this similarity is reinforced by the Russian flavor of the dialect and Russian place names such as Novi Leningrad. Hmm, interesting. He also talked, he introduced the idea of a line marriage in this uh, book, where like they're part of a century old line marriage where new spouses are introduced by mutual consent and regular intervals so that the marriage never comes to an end. Huh? Okay. Weird. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking about okay. like century long bloodlines and things like that. Very uh, interesting. What? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know. He's uh, sus. He's sus. Um, but yeah, yeah maybe we'll, we'll, we'll put him on the thing. This super for... reactionary. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we, we can definitely return to, to Robert Heinlein. Uh, For sure. Yeah, there's a lot there to talk about. We it, mm -hmm. it would be interesting to do more into the sort of sus sci-fi because there really is so much there. Uh, both, you know, not I mean, he alone could be a whole episode, but there's really a lot, and we haven't really gotten in so much to. We've done a lot of UFO stuff. We haven't gotten in so much yeah. to the science fiction side of things. Yeah. 
We haven't, but it's something I think we've, we've naturally dis- yeah. I think we've naturally discovered it in many of our episodes that these sus sci-fi authors just keep popping up in the strangest places, and it doesn't well, seem. I guess I did, has yeah. become. It's like it's become really like the standard like salient new teleology for how people imagine the future. You know that is mm-hmm. what people think is the future is going to be is the future that was imagined in science fiction in by American yeah. science fiction writers mostly like. Mm-hmm. that we're all going to go colonize the stars, that, you know, we're going to settle on the moon. Like, all this stuff has been laid out before us by the imaginations uh, of science fiction writers. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're, like, e- Elon Musk, like, he is someone who obviously is influenced by that. Uh, you know, these people, uh, you know, here's to the weird ones, the freaks and the dreamers or whatever, you know, that's... Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's where new, you really see uh, the military-industrial complex and like the deadhead, e- yeah. yeah, like the deadhead ethos and like the aerospace industry kind of you know coalescing into this like singular being. That, yeah, and then we'll know, all you, become you, gods and we'll outgrow these silly superstitions and you know yep. yeah we'll possibly murder or slaughter some alien race that's out there so that we can all come together. And integrate into a global economy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. It'll mm. be great. It'll be great. Based so, on the blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. Based okay. on the blockchain. Exactly. Um, okay. So we can uh, we can move to number ten. Do you want to read that? Yeah. Sure. Loving the new regime asks, you think Idris Elba and Tom Hanks really had COVID? Um, maybe. I mean, like, yeah, pr- probably they did. I mean, people can have COVID and just recover from it, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it could have been a psyop, but that. yeah, for the most part. I mean, I feel like the opposite is true, where it's not, like, you know, if people, in, for instance, like African leaders who have mysteriously died of COVID when you'd think that maybe they would be able to recover, uh, yeah. that I feel like maybe they didn't really have COVID, uh, whereas like, <laughs> uh, Tom yeah, Hanks absolutely. and Idris Elba did. I actually yeah. heard something really amazing, not about Tom Hanks, but about uh, his son, Chet Hanks. Yeah, my girlfriend told me this uh, because she was watching an episode of uh, Impulsive or something, which I guess is like Logan Paul's uh, podcast or show, you know, or Jake Paul or something uh, with, with Chet Hanks on it. And Logan Paul was like, bro, you know, people think, like, you and your dad are in the Illuminati. Well, let's convince them you're not in the Illuminati. And uh, Chad Hanks apparently has, like, an all-seeing eye tattoo. Um, And he went on at length about how, you know, he's not in the Illuminati. But then, after all that, he suddenly pivoted and said that he met a being that like looked like the mona lisa he wouldn't actually say like an et or anything he said like it was an entity or like a being but that you know it enlightened him it it communicated with him through like feelings or ideas like not through language and it enlightened him and logan paul was like bro i'm trying to tell people you're not in the illuminati i'm trying like and uh he was like bro what does illuminati mean what does it mean you know, so it means enlightened, and he was enlightened by this this being. So, wow. uh, which yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I guess was you know, really crazy uh, thing. Uh, that is really crazy. Yeah, I hadn't heard of. I'm trying to look it up now, and there's like a lot of stuff about like like no, Chet Hanks isn't in the Illuminati. Talking about how he. <laughs> basically yeah like he uh oh yeah he tells of his out-of-body experience you can only find it like on reddit but it's all it's all just about like how he debunked the silly rumors that you know basically uh that he's doing 
yeah, he said he gave like an angry, like a rage out against people who mm-hmm. he slams the ridiculous rumors. This is on March of like last year. So actually around the same time that Tom Hanks like got COVID. Interesting. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But yeah, the he went on came to just... and gave Tom Hanks COVID and he gave Chet Hanks the seal of the Illuminati. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess he had posted an earlier video where he satirized being discovered as a member of the Illuminati. But then people, I guess, started asking him and he said, he posted, you motherfuckers are going to believe what you want because you're already so fucking committed to your weird internet conspiracies, but I'm not actually in the fucking Illuminati, dude. I was trolling in that last video, obviously, because I'm pissed off at what you motherfuckers are fucking saying about my family. The ridiculous, sick fuck shit that you guys like to sit around and fucking think about is fucking disgusting. I think he's uh, basically uh, probably alluding to the fact that people think that like Tom Hanks is a pedo or that he sacrifices children or that... You know, it is yeah. interesting how Tom Hanks has acquired kind of this duality of being like the nice guy that can do no wrong, but other people think that he's absolutely like the most evil yeah, actor in Hollywood. Yeah, I think it's Hollywood. because at first like people held him up as being the nice guy who could do no wrong, so obviously mm-hmm. as a result of that, people started to think that he was like the leader of the cabal, <laughs> you know, that he was like Q's number one arch enemy. Uh, yes, yes, he definitely it to the moon or to the the into the tunnels underneath the earth uh, in, the, in the buggies you know exactly exactly you know. and i mean yeah i guess like a lot of it was uh yeah i forget when it really po- i think it was kind of you know somewhere in the, the the like the transition period between like pizzagate and uh QAnon, but also like me too like when all those things were kind of like yeah. swirling around like people kind of came out with uh with that i mean i guess he was in like the da vinci code just like a little bit kind of sus you know and also yeah i, I read something uh funny about that which is that he thought he was gonna be playing leonardo da vinci but instead he had to play like professor robert langdon like the badass symbologist <laughs> who like you know uses his intuition to but i don't know if that's that's true i had heard that uh that might just be like a, a rumor but uh yeah, yeah i mean it's, it's kind of like about, we, we we don't know kind of like what i mean i know that i know tom hanks uh like myself is from the like the east bay uh you know i think he grew up in like oakland or something and i forget if he had uh yeah i mean he didn't come from i don't think he came from you know some kind of fancy connected family or whatever uh, i guess he was kind of like an evangelical he didn't I, it's kind of weird like tom hanks like i mean that's the other thing maybe why people don't really suspect him is because he kind of like scrapped his way up from kind of just being like a nobody dude and like gradually yeah i mean he also just like, like seems like a nice guy you know he has a kind of i guess you know to some like i obviously don't feel any feelings towards tom hanks but you know he has that kind of uh, affect that a lot of people have but it's like hey yeah hey man you know so okay wait a minute wait a minute all right i have an alert Okay, there is something. Mm-hmm. It's probably okay. not what like QAnon people want to hear in terms of susness, but I did not know this that uh, Tom Hanks practices transcendental meditation and participates in mm. charity dinners for veterans victims of post-traumatic stress disorder organized by the David Lynch Foundation uh, with Mary <laughs> Parker. He says, uh, oh, wow. And 
yeah, he, he says, I guess, like, I used to crumble between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 7. I mean, I was no good for anything. I couldn't read. I couldn't talk on the phone. I couldn't do any work. It was really an unproductive four hours. And now, with meditation, it's the most productive hours of my day. What? Okay. I mean, that's that's a weird, like, pitch for transcendental meditation. It's like, there are four hours during the day where I can't function in the middle of the afternoon, and now I meditated, and I'm so productive. Sounds very spiritual. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah, just, it's you know, not damning many... for most people, though, who don't know about the sussness of transcendental meditation, but it's us. Uh, but all he, these oh, you know, it. David Lynch hmm. loves it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait. Hold on. Okay. Okay. Strike two. I found strike two. <laughs> um, okay. okay. This is us. Because, you know, we, we almost forget uh, that, you know, he was in one of the biggest blockbusters of the 90s, Apollo 13 you know, about right, our glorious yes. mm-hmm. space program. And so, you know, he, yes. he's a big, big supporter of NASA since I think then. And he said that he originally, you know, when he was a kid, he wanted to be an astronaut. But here we go. Hanks is a member of the National Space Society, serving on the board of governors of the nonprofit edita- educational space advocacy organization founded by Werner von Braun. <laughs> wow. Cool. Yeah, All right, we got a sus. little von Braun connection. Uh, yeah, the Na- I have read about this before. It almost goes back to Heinlein to the uh, Institute of like Noetic Sciences, and yeah, uh, I think this came. Yeah, it, it merged with the National Space Institute, which was von Braun's organization, mm-hmm. and the L five mm-hmm. Society, which was founded by Gerard K O'Neill, who I think. Uh, created the O'Neill sphere kind of concept of like orbital space colonies. Yeah, I guess uh, these guys are just a cool charity that produces cool things to support space development. Uh, <laughs> just something a good guy would do, you know, I guess. Yeah, uh, just normal cool stuff. Yeah, agreed. Lots of people have gotten, uh, lots of people have gotten the, oh my God, okay, this is too good. They give out every year, they give out the Robert A. Heinlein Memorial Award. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And let's see, some of the winners of the Robert A. Heinlein Memorial Year uh, Award in past years have been uh, Gerard O'Neill. Uh, I'm actually reading in, let me just read like the first like 10. Uh, wow. So from 1986 <laughs> on, Gerard O'Neill, Arthur C. Clarke, Dr. Werner von Braun, Gene Roddenberry, wow. Robert Goddard, Buzz Aldrin, Carl Sagan, Neil Armstrong, uh, Robert Zubrin, J- Captain James Lovell. I think, uh, yeah, Moon Moon guy, right? Uh, or no, no, uh, he was the guy Tom Hanks played, right? Yeah, James Lovell. Maybe, yeah, uh, then Chuck Yeager, uh, Stephen Hawking, 2014, Elon Musk, and then uh, Jerry <laughs> Cornell. And yeah, Jerry Pornell, who I guess is very close. Oh, no, Jerry Pornell is the guy who's obsessed with fucking Robert Heinlein and like runs that society and reads like 40 Robert Heinlein novels every year, I believe. Wow. The guy who I joked about, like he found out and he found out about him in a, uh, gifted children program. Um, yes. Right. So, uh, yeah. Wow. He had a PhD in psychology. Sus. Anyways. Um, he was introduced to Malthusian principles and liked (laughs) them, I guess. And, Oh there my God! Go. Okay, so yeah, so that so Elon Musk, like everybody's down. Oh, they also. Oh my God, they also have the NSS von Braun Award. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and so the winners of that include nobody really that we know, uh, but Elon Musk won that in two thousand nine. So pretty far back. That's given an odd number of years. Gotta collect all those von Braun awards. I just you want gotta get that von Braun award. Named after von Braun. Yes. 
So I think it's really cool that Tom Hanks is serving on the board of this fantastic organization that is going to, you know, basically... He uh, definitely wants, like, the first ticket on the spaceship to the Nanai Cloud society. (laughs) He's going to go... Yeah, he wants to go to Mars in a bucket. He wants to go to Mars in a bucket real bad. He wants wants to go on a mission to Mars in a bucket. Yes, he definitely does. <laughs> was he, he was he in Mission to Mars? No, right? No, no, that, no, that was a more. Gary Sinise who who was in yeah. you know Forrest Gump with him. But yeah, he, right. yeah. So as far as like, yeah, as far as him faking having COVID, I feel like it's a little bit kind of uh, not. It, it's irrelevant to the question of whether or not he was psyoping us. Which I think my answer would be maybe he was because he was one of the first people to really kind of it was a big deal, like one of the biggest celebrities to get covid over in Australia and kind of encourage everybody to, I don't know, stay home and lock down and all these other things. And, you know, I mean, it was it was just one little part. I do remember wasn't there a little bit of like susness about Idris Elba kind of saying he had covid, but then. Maybe then he like got COVID again later, and they were like, "Wait, did you not have it the first time?" I forget. There's something going on with Idris Elba, kind of that was a little dodgy in that, like either he wasn't telling people or he was saying it, but like didn't have it. I forget. But again, mm-hmm. I would assume I that yeah, like maybe they. Yeah, he talked about he thought he was going to die following uh, his COVID nineteen. Uh, diagnosis and he's humbled to be alive and he recovered I guess he says he had a bad reaction to it so you know that yeah. and he's talked a lot about how yeah it was very traumatic and everything so you know I mean uh, but also like you know getting COVID and just watching TV every day last year could almost like psyop you into being more traumatized by the experience of getting it then you just got, you know what I mean? I, I think, you know, as we talked mm-hmm. about, the mind is very powerful, has a lot of influence over the body. And if you get this thing that, like, yeah, I don't there know, definitely were saying, people who, like, psyop themselves into having COVID, like people who just would endlessly test negative, but would be certain that they had it. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I can feel it. I can feel it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like, wasn't so, Julia Ioff like that, you know? Or Julia Yoff, Oh, probably. Or yeah, or yeah. And, like, yeah. Putin gave it to her, um, personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. but the fact that Tom Wilson's Hanks. War. Tom Hanks, pretty sus. Oh, uh, big psyop. Big, yeah. Like, total mm-hmm. propaganda. I, like, even in my less woke state in, like, 2007, I felt a little bit weird about that movie. And the more I think back, and I haven't watched it in years, but it's somehow, like, even more that egregious than Rainbow Three. joint, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so. yeah. And Mike uh, Nichols, too. Mr. Little, Mr. New Hollywood. Uh, Day of the Dolphin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? um, so he's yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it's just it's funny that like in all the stuff we've read about Operation Cyclone and the Afghan War and stuff, like Charlie Wilson's name doesn't even come up in like any of the most of the narrative. <laughs> like it's so weird that this became a story that was presented to us of like this is how the whole covert involvement in Afghanistan thing went down through this like probably I, I think there probably were even like sus Texas connections because that guy was a Texas Democrat who was all plugged in I remember there were all these like rich like Houston oil widows or whatever like Julia Roberts that were always giving him money 
for to like buy weapons for the Mujahideen. And like that's kind of played as like, oh, it's so wacky. Like he's a Democrat, but he's like taking money from billionaires to like arm Contras, <laughs> you know, and it just kind of like didn't interrogate any of that shit. And then just says like because we didn't build schools at the end. That's why 9-11 happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Them. So we're abandoning them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're abandoning them. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, that. So Tom Hanks, I mean, you know, it's a, he's also in the U.S. Army Ranger Society or something like that for i think playing for saving private ryan um Mm -hmm. yeah and uh the first actor to uh be inducted you know in the u.s army rangers hall of fame and i guess uh i don't know maybe the only one but yeah he's he's got some sus kind of stuff going on you know um i think time maybe time will tell you know if more comes out yeah his his son does seem to be uh, off the rails so i don't know you know, his first son seems so normal. It seems like that's what Tom Hanks' son would be like, Colin Hanks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now. Yeah. But um. But Chet? No, no. He's a different beast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, watch um, out. White okay, Boy Summer see. is maybe a blue beam operation. So. Uh, You're right. Maybe oh he's talking God. about Nordics. Yeah. The summer <laughs> of the Nordics. We'll the see. Tall whites we'll see. Are coming. Yeah. yeah. The tall. Yeah. The twelve foot tall whites. Tall white, tall white summer was the original TikTok, but then the, <laughs> his handlers canceled that and they they rebranded it. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Well, it's interesting we can, that it looks like the Mona Lisa, the entity, you know, drawn by Da Vinci. That's very odd. Da Vinci, yeah, da oh, Da Vinci, Vinci Code. Code. Oh shit. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Wow. That actually, that I would I imagine that would be, even if we're just talking about his uh, subconscious or hallucination, that would kind of make sense is like, oh, your dad starred in that movie franchise about how there's a code in the Mona Lisa. It's the most, you know, yeah. recognizable kind of thing about that movie. And then Mona Lisa mm-hmm. comes to you. What the... I don't even know what's going on. And, you know... I mean, Mona Lisa yeah. kind of looks like a gray wearing a mask a little bit. <laughs> she does have a little bit of alien kind of... Yeah, she definitely yeah. does. She's got, like, definitely, a like, toy. a vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Might be a toy. More, more yeah. of a gray, but could be a toy, too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well. All right. We can um, move on to the next one. Oh, this is a big one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. I'll read it. Yeah. So from from Future Shock. What's the deal with ISIS? I want to hear the SJ take on the susness, occultness, dracularity of ISIS. Do you think the group forming was natural at all or completely manufactured? Also, what's your take on the idea of the CIA encouraging ISIS and YPG recruitment at the same time, with YPG recruitment being somewhat in the open and ISIS recruitment being more occulted? You guys have touched on this a bit, but I want to hear more of a deep dive on the susness of ISIS specifically. Well, right. yeah, I think there's a lot of susness to ISIS. Yeah. I think that the the fact that there was uh, ISIS and YPG recruitment at the same time, that definitely is true. And I think that like those two things obviously fueled each other because it made it heroic to go fight for Rojava. Like, you know, people forget mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, many of the people who went to go fight for the YPG, you know, some uh, people maybe on the left, uh, tend to overlook that a lot of the people who went to go fight for the YPG weren't doing it uh, because they were based leftists. Uh, they were doing it because they wanted to murder ISIS. Uh, they were mm-hmm. doing it because they wanted to save Christians or they wanted to yeah, save the Yazidis. Muslims. And, like, yeah, ISIS, like, you know, they are a bad group, obviously, you know, and if you are, like, someone who uh, 
hates Islam and you want to, like, massacre Muslims, like, obviously, that's a great opportunity for you because you can just go and slaughter them and you don't really get to feel guilty about it and no one's really going to stop you. But it doesn't make you a hero. It makes you a psychopath. It's a very <laughs> deranged thing. But I think that those two yeah. things, like the, the brutality of ISIS and the heroism of the Kurds and, you know, even the sub-dialectic of that being the idea of their amazing leftism and the democratic confederalism that they were building mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. in Rojava, yeah. you know, was definitely part of that. Yeah, and I, I remember following all that stuff in real time, particularly when it, when it really burst on the scene in, 24, in June 2014, when ISIS invaded Iraq and started, uh, you know, drove the Yazidis out of their land. And remember there was, there was like a mountain that all the Yazidis were trapped yes. on? And suddenly everyone yeah, was talking yes. about our responsibility to protect. And then, you know, maybe still wasn't quite enough but then, and you know, then they release those videos that, you know, and, and I'll, I'll say right here, like back then, because I've mentioned before, like I was, I was writing this TV pilot back then that had to do mostly with drone warfare, but I kind of decided to pivot to this setting after I watched it erupt in real time because it was, you know, I don't know, it was fresh. It was fascinating. There were so many layers of just craziness to it. And it, mm -hmm. it, I don't know. It's and, and of course, it eventually did involve like a huge amount of drone warfare going into like northern and eastern Syria and northern Iraq mm -hmm. as well, you know, in a variety of ways. But like, I remember those videos, and like, I, I was one of those people that when like Rita Katz, because it was always Rita Katz, okay, which is so sus, but it was always her that managed to like quote unquote find the ISIS execution video. And usually you could kind of get it for a little while, but then as more and more of those videos came out over the months, that that was actually an interesting instance of like the media being like, we can't show this, and it kind of just got deleted from the internet. And like you basically, mm -hmm. they would just show you like one single screenshot from it. But like I watched them, and I saw other ISIS, I saw their kind of propaganda videos. I've mentioned before, their aesthetics were so sophisticated and flashy, and I'm not trying to be like an like kind of an orientalist of like, oh, like some Arabs couldn't make cool videos. But like, mm, there's a certain look and a style and a production quality that was not present with like Al-Qaeda in the 2000s, that this group all of a no. sudden had in spades. And it was suspicious. What? Yeah, it was a bit... Oh, you mean you agree? You mean you agree? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that there was a change in production quality. I wouldn't necessarily say that yeah. that is inherently what is suspicious well, okay. about it, but... You no, know, no, 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 yeah. there's so many other things, but, like, that that was one thing that jumped out to me. Then the videos. I saw the James Foley video. I had watched it. I watched the real thing, and it was always talked about in the media as, like, this gruesome, disgusting, horrible, basically snuff film where they cut this guy's head off. But they actually don't show that in the video. And so and, and this is true for, I think, the four American hostages that they executed in very similar with the Jihadi John, just a perfect supervillain, yes. Cobra commander, right, that um, basically yeah. executed all these guys. But, you know, and people kind of conspiracy type people said at the time that, like, what's up with these videos? I think this is fake. I think that they didn't actually people definitely said they were fake. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. people did say they were fake. And I have to say, because there were other videos where, unfortunately, from my viewing eyes, uh, were not fake. And, and you know what was interesting? Those videos were usually them killing Shiites or Yazidis or captured Syrian army soldiers. So basically Arabs, 
you know, um, yeah. or, or Kurds sometimes. But really, it was like whenever they got like an American, like a white American person, they did this weird thing. It was like it was a different. It's like it might have been on a soundstage somewhere underground, but made to look like it was outside in the desert. It seemed to be like maybe maybe Jihadi John was standing in front of a green screen, which, you know, is something that they could obviously set up pretty easily but it just had this weird quality and it was also not as good quality as the other videos that they were releasing like uh, flames of war and like the breaking of the barriers and right you know uh, flames of war yeah yeah the clashing of the sword series um the rafita hunters (laughs) like they really had a whole like mtv thing they were pumping out of all these different like exciting flashy war crimes footage that um that yeah but then when they did these videos they were different and then it's like as soon as they would go to like uh, cut their necks unlike the daniel pearl video or the um who is it like david berg those two guys who got beheaded in the 2000s it then like fades away as they just when he starts cutting his neck and then it like dissolve cuts to him lying on the ground with like his head uh his chopped off head like posed on his chest and that was like the standard way they would do it and it just felt like Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people even like in the mainstream media speculated that perhaps there was some kind of weird setup to this where like they told the hostages that you have to like we're going to do a mock execution video. So you have to say this statement and act like this. And if you do it, like we won't actually kill you. And then they like killed them later. But that kind of seems kind of weird. Like, why would you do that? Like, maybe it's just or maybe he's but there's no sign of them struggling. Honestly, they look drugged. And I mean, God, remember John Cantley? Yes, John Cantley. Poor John yeah, Cantley. Can't Poor can't John lie. Cantley. Oh, Whatever John Cantley. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, you know, anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about, I think he was a he was a British journalist. I think he was working freelance. I forget who he was actually working for, but he got kidnapped. Oh, he escaped. He's out, he's out now. Really? Yes. No way. Yeah, he was a British war photographer. Okay, he was kidnapped with James Foley in 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, also the other weird thing about James Foley, James Foley had a very kind of like undercover CIA vibe about him. And he had worked for a kind of strange, very kind of obscure like online news website. I think it was called like Global Post. Yeah, Global Post, which was based in Boston. So he went to Libya to cover the uprising against, you know, Muammar Gaddafi and then, you know, ended up going to Syria and trying to like embed himself with like the, you know, the Free Syrian Army or something. He was he was in Afghan you know, he was in Afghanistan embedded with the US like special operations forces and stuff and oh wow um uh, kroll incorporated uh that was run by like the dad of nick kroll uh was hired to to hunt him down and and like rescue him from isis but yeah i don't know the, like, that was just very weird like so people suspected maybe this almost seemed like a weird like front outlet the global post thing and you know they they kind of got called out after james foley was killed about kind of like sending in unsupported personnel into like war zones but you know all these people were kind of floating around doing like quote-unquote freelance like war journalism but then okay everybody forgets like that literally was what caused obama to like send in the special ops and the drones and start airstriking syria airstriking syria you know it was like the back door to the red line you know it's like okay we couldn't we can't 
uh, I guess, muster the support to attack Assad directly or do a no-fly zone. But if there's like a genocide and then one of our boys, one of our, our cool liberal journalists, like gets you know kidnapped and beheaded, yeah, <laughs> and then, he had to make and, like ISIS propaganda videos. Yeah, and then yeah. his friend has to make like ISIS like Vice like uh, cribs videos kind of about how like uh, stupid Obama is and how like the Islamic State's going to win and how they might execute him any moment. Like it was really dark. Like kind of what they in, unless maybe you think okay, because then if you want to get more uh, critical paranoid I about guess John it, Cantley then actually he was rescued earlier. That's what I was reading because I just googled him. Uh, for some reason, this was like reported as recent oh. news he was rescued earlier but then i guess he was he was recaptured yeah so he was first kidnapped by it's amazing that this guy is constantly gets kidnapped but yeah he was kidnapped earlier in 2012 and rescued then he was kidnapped again and then he was in a bunch of isis videos but the british security but minister like, <sighs> stated that cantley is believed to still be alive yeah, they said the last they heard of him, I guess, from the the Syrian, the based Syrian Democratic Forces said they thought he might still be alive in, inside Deir Azor, inside Syria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, weird. So that that's eerie because, yeah. Also, his sister said that she thinks that he believes two thirds of what he says in the videos, which are basically like constantly criticizing the U.S. and the British, and criticize like their hostage policy comparing it unfavorably yeah. to other European countries. And yet I remember the Lend Me Your Ears series that he started releasing. I watched all of these like when they dropped because it was so yeah. bizarre. I that was kind of during the siege like, of most Kobani. of what I mean, that's how you do good propaganda. I mean, that's basically what not to demean Russia, but that's what RT is. You know, they obviously like or even what AJ plus uh, kind of is. Their criticism is very cynical. But a lot of it is correct for, you know, Al Jazeera yeah. English in general, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, in terms of the CIA origins, we've talked a little bit about it there. It, it's it's kind of murky, but we do know that a lot of the people that, you know, ended up in the kind of the Iraqi leadership of ISIS were, you know, people that were thrown into places like Camp Bukha during the Iraq war in the 2000s. And some of right. whom were tortured at places like Abu Ghraib even if they weren't literally mm-hmm. there. And also, the, I do remember that the circumstances under which Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was released from Camp Bukha were always very hazy, and there were conflicting stories in like mainstream news about what had actually happened. Like, was he released on an amnesty, or was he did he cut a deal like it it, and there was like some story about how when he was like walking out of the gates after they released him in like 2008 he said to the guards like see you in new york or something like that it kind of just sounds like a little bit of like lore building i mean also the person that he succeeded in the sort of islamic state of iraq organization i'm forgetting his name right now it was like it it was maybe um like abu omar al-baghdadi but there's still disagreement over whether or not he even existed and of course, he was, uh, I believe, Abu the Bakr successor. No, no, Abu, Abu Omar. Omar Abu Omar. I, I believe it's Abu Omar al Baghdadi. And of course, he was a successor to. Oh my God, the the main dude, Zarqawi. Yeah, sorry, Abu Musab al Zarqawi. Abu Musab al Zarqawi, who was the leader of uh, of the kind of um, the organization that ended up being, uh, the, you know, basically the the Mujahideen Shura Council. You know, kind of the coalition of sort of Al Qaeda. Uh, affiliated groups and he was killed in an airstrike in 2006 
and then mm-hmm. they kind of came out of the same organization. And then, yeah, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi was the leader from 2006 to 2010. And at least a couple years ago, when I was kind of researching him, if you look on Wikipedia, it's this mugshot of a man believed to be Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. So they have some information about him, but there's a controversy over his identity. Uh, yeah, in 2007, U.S. military spokesman General Kevin Bergner claimed that Abu Omar al-Baghdadi did not actually exist and that all of his audio statements were actually read by an elderly Iraqi actor. And mm-hmm. the, the detainee identified as Khalid al-Mashhadani, a self-proclaimed intermediary to Osama bin Laden, claimed that al-Baghdadi was a fictional character created to give an Iraqi face to a foreign-one group. In March 2008, the spokesman for a rival insurgent organization, Hamas Iraq, also claimed that al-Baghdadi was a fabrication made by al-Qaeda to put an Iraqi face on their organization. However, U.S. military officials later came to believe the position of al-Baghdadi had been backfilled by an actual commander. So, yeah, uh, I mean, the commander like, was the U.S. military officials. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, so there, there's a kind uh, of a weird thing going on, like throughout this whole thing of like what kind of nefarious like CIA or military involvement did, you know, how far did it go back with the, the kind of the group that would become ISIS? Obviously, the military was fighting them, but there seemed to be all these games going on. And it, it, I almost see it as like the opportunity for like the insurgency to develop like a, a kind of Sunni Islamist insurgency to develop in Iraq when we invaded almost gave them a whole new, like uh, an ocean of new recruits that they could like ensnare into places like Abu Ghraib or, I mean, at the bare minimum, I don't know, make them like informants of some kind or, or eliminate them or, maybe do some experiments on them, which is what it totally sounded like it basically what was, that's what was going on in Abu Ghraib. I mean, they were doing a uh, like horrible, like Phoenix program type, like psychological, you know, trying to psychologically break people, learned helplessness, yeah. all these, like, so basically, you know, we're right up to the edge of like MK ultra shit. And then so much about ISIS feels like a both like satanic and some kind of MK ultra, like Phoenix army of like uh, sadistic killers that really is using kind of like a you know the Kinney Parking Corporation use like wearing Warner Brothers face as a mask. It's like they're wearing this like Islamic jihadi face, but the actual thing that's driving it, you know, contrary to what Graham Wood might say, actually, it, it I mean it's related to Islam in in the fact of the its aesthetic representation and kind of what it, it claims about itself, but it's not actually rooted. Would you agree with that in, you know, serious, uh, like, well, Islamic it's doctrine? it's really hard to say. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, the idea, the Graham Wood idea is that ISIS is, like, deeply scholarly and based on, you know, a, a deep engagement with, like, the Islamic intellectual tradition, which is absolute bullshit. Like, that's not remotely true. Or that, like, they have an understanding of, like, the rules of, of, of j- the fiqh of jihad and things like that. Like, no. Like, that's not true. Like, most of, like, the ulama, like, that still exists, like, you know, uh, or, the, you know, that, you know, we still have, like, you learn scholars of uh, Islam and the Islamic tradition, like, mm-hmm. have repudiated ISIS, like, on, you know, fiqh grounds. Like, it's not... That whole idea is, like, outrageous and just, like, complete fraud and there's a lot of stuff like that like that kind of journalistic charlatanism around isis as well that is like a whole other thing like the whole thing with the like caliphate the award-winning new york times podcast about isis where it turns out like one of their sources was just like completely lying about ever having been in isis 
And wow. the woman who did it, I remember reading some amazing, oh, the woman who was like the producer of it, I remember reading some article about her. She was in Mali and she was like, you know, I was looking at all these uh, papers that I guess had scattered, you know, I, or I was seeing in these markets and, you know, I saw that some were in Arabic and I thought, huh, you know, they speak French in Mali, but anything that's Arabic, you know, that is inherently some kind of foreign invasion, some foreign, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, are you like, what? Like, that's the wow. mind that you have because people don't know anything. And ever since 9-11, they're just complete fools who are working this beat who don't know anything about anything. But they just like say, they like adjust their glasses and say it in this pedantic voice. And then people take it, you know, I, um, I'm, I'll be haunted forever by like seeing like some Hillary bot on Facebook, like retweeting that Graham Wood article and saying like required reading kitties, like, mm, yeah, shut up. Like, and that was all <laughs> nonsense, all nonsense. The idea of the, like, you know, very Islamic, you know, and that I think is part of the psyop of ISIS. Like, do I think, you know, to Future Shock's question, do I think the group forming was natural at all or completely manufactured? I think that it was in some respects natural because the uh, area of Iraq and Syria was completely destabilized by the invasion yeah. of Iraq. And yeah. there definitely was a lot of more indirect political causes for the situation to worsen and worsen in a group like ISIS, you know, which is the who pride themselves on their brutality to emerge in that environment that absolutely is in some respect, like, quote unquote, natural. It's not really natural. But, you know, yeah. what I mean. like, you know, it's not I, like I would say uh, it was it was natural yeah. to the extent that I do believe that they they leveraged kind of a, a relationships or a kind of a tenuous alliance with some of the Sunni tribes in the sort of northwestern region of Iraq who had, you know, like you said, like due to the destabilizing effects of like the U.S. invasion, you know, not kind of in a, in a difficult spot where basically the majority was kind of running the government and they felt kind of slighting them and basically that... You know, maybe in places like Fallujah or places like Mosul that, you know, certain kind of like local uh, authorities kind of allowed ISIS to come in if it was going to kind of kick out their enemies, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't know. But but like that, that would be kind of the extent of like, oh, it's like super organic. It's like they leveraged like Sunni Shia tensions and then also the total chaos of the Syrian war, which is like, you know, they, they kind of invaded early on and they were in the al-Nusra front, kind of this broad alliance with sort of traditional al-Qaeda, which was getting CIA support. So they, they were getting CIA support and probably Turkish support and Gulf state support, you know, from Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and uh, Qatar yes. and places like that. Um, and then, you know, when they split with al-Qaeda and then went back and invaded Iraq, it did feel like something that was like, oh, gee, like, first of all, now we have to militarily recommit to like we basically have to like re-enter Iraq properly to fight these guys. Second, they're countering in kind of the most vicious way possible Iranian influence in, in you know, Iraq by basically like going through and kind of like trying to like genocide Shias. And basically they took over almost half the country for a while. You know, they got all the way down to like Ramadi and Tikrit and Fallujah, like almost got to, I remember when they were posting on Twitter, like Baghdad in the distance and like bomb smoke, like rising. And yeah. they were like, like Although one, you know, one finger emoji. Like, 
Hashtag I witness. Feel, yeah, yeah, one finger emoji. <laughs> I do feel like some of the, like, uh, successes of ISIS, there is also some exaggeration of that. Yes, like I the, think also like the, the military the, pulled like out in a lot of cases. The participated in yes. the, you know, in perpetuating the idea of ISIS as, like, this civilizational threat. And, like, we all had to hear about how they were coming for rome or what you know something like that mm-hmm. you know like they were gonna yeah, do attacks yeah. here and every time like a muslim did something insane like it was isis you know it like yes. literally was isis i mean isis claims uh well the stephen paddock thing isis was a claim you know claiming that yeah, that's you know? true like, uh, so uh, and we did get those lone like, wolf we, we got those lone wolf ones which like i i tracked a lot of them and they were all quite sus and that was also something that was kind of new and now in a way is kind of normalized because like 4chan shooters kind of operate in the same way but the idea that these people were not like they didn't go to syria and like join isis and like go through the training and then go back i mean some of them actually kind of did um like the libyan bomber in manchester but you know they either went to libya or syria and maybe got you know training by these al-qaeda isis type groups but yeah in a lot of cases it was people yeah, that hadn't yeah. even gone over there but, but got, yes. like, in, kind of brainwashed by ISIS over the internet and then went out, like, quote-unquote, inspired by them. But I don't know if that's really true. But, like, that's a thing. Well, like, think about, I yeah, think about FBI entrapment, security services entrapping vulnerable people in, and or maybe, like, naive, like, people into doing terrorist Like, that happens all the time, where the FBI basically has an informant yeah, online. Yeah, but like, I don't hey, kid, necessarily put know a bomb? things that, like, to me, the, st- the biggest ISIS lone wolf thing, I guess there was a San Bernardino shooting which was another one, but the yeah. biggest lone wolf ISIS thing to me was the pulse shooting, which I really think had nothing to do with ISIS at all or like Islam. I think you're right. And that all. guy, that guy, I mean, that guy's dad. Well, it only, I think it has, <laughs> it, it has something to do with ISIS and the fact that his dad was also a uh, Mujahideen CIA asset. <laughs> um, so in that sense, he's like part of the same like core tradition of, you know, basically he had this like Voice of America funded TV station that he ran out of Florida and was pictured with like all these uh, congressmen and like senators and he showed up at a Hillary Clinton rally, I think after the shooting and he was in the stands right behind her wearing like a big red hat. But It wasn't a MAGA hat, but very bizarre. And, you know, he was like super pro Hillary but like the yeah. Sadiq Mateen, you know, like very weird. And then the guy, and then the fact that Omar Mateen had worked for G4S, which was the company that bought out Wackenhut security and, you know, had basically, he had been visited by the FBI multiple times and, you know, was like saying crazy shit at work that was very obvious. And then he had sort of like his secret gay kind of double life. And then he went and shot a gay nightclub. Like there's just so much going on with it. I mean, it, but in the sense of him being like an operative of ISIS, that seems kind of ridiculous. Like there's a bunch of bizarre shit going on, but the idea that this is just like, oh, and ISIS got us again, like eh, yeah. no, and and that was used to kind of amp up the counterterrorism rhetoric and all the your you know you know just we Charlie, remember that? Yeah, of that course. was ISIS, yeah, right? Well, I remember. Yeah. Um, oh, and Bataclan, where the uh, kind of sus the uh, Eagles of Death Metal were uh, shot up, their concert got shot up. Remember that? Yes, right. I'm not even sure if that was ISIS. Definitely Charlie Hebdo was not ISIS. Uh, that might have been Al-Qaeda. Uh, that that might have been Al-Qaeda. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I'm pretty. Well, maybe mm-hmm. they did claim. Maybe the maybe they did claim ISIS uh, affiliation. I mean, yeah, Al Qaeda definitely was uh, Charlie Hebdo was was Al Qaeda. But did Bataclan? I had to look it up. Uh, I don't remember because I do remember a little bit of ISIS discourse happening at the time. But everyone yeah, put their the French their French flag profiles for the attack. Two of them remember were the remember, remember the yeah. knees truck bombing like the knees truck rampage right, where of course, the knees truck yeah it killed truck, like eighty people or something it was called on on right wing Twitter yes mm-hmm. wow oh and you know and, and so interesting you know what happens after you get some guy to run a bunch of people down in a resort town then you know they called it a state of emergency and then announced the intensification of French airstrikes on ISIL in Syria and Iraq so it's like every time. One of the, they really needed those singular spectacular events, whether it was kind of this video of an American and being... who were they attacking? The Eagles of Death Metal. Yeah. yeah, who were named as a joke of, like, we're the, like the band The Eagles, but of Death Metal. But they weren't really a Death Metal yes. band. They were, like, a super group or something, but kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of weird. And, the, you know, they intensified their airstrikes. So, like, every time they'd execute another person in a video or they would have a lone wolf kind of inspired terrorist attack in Europe or America, we would intensify the military kind of invasion basically of Syria while kind of claiming that we were basically going after, I think in some ways both the media participated and ISIS like was almost had to, who knows where, where they got trained and got their ideas, but they have the same type of tactics that a Contra death squad or a Phoenix kill team or a Mexican drug cartel would have, which is, you know, Mexican drug cartels are the one that pioneered like sending execution videos to people and kind of like well-produced ones or like filming their own mm-hmm. raids on rival cartels and stuff like that, you know? So you see a certain continuity of tactics and, uh, and it's like perfectly designed a to, like you said at the beginning to dehumanize, uh, the, to create this like dehumanized evil enemy, almost like the bugs in starship troopers. ISIS is just yeah, so evil. Not Nazi zombies. Yeah. It's uh-huh. exactly, yeah. Like Nazi yeah. zombies. Mm-hmm. And so basically, that allows for people to be okay with bombing the shit out of the... If you're bombing the shit out of these people, cool, right? Because you're stopping genocide, you're helping out Iraq, and all these other things, and you're, you're a good guy. And then, you know, all, yeah. and then you can partner with other groups on the ground. And so I think you do have kind of like a good cop, bad cop thing going on with the YPG and the SDF and ISIS, where the U.S. Yeah. is in some way supporting giving certain support to both these sides because they're playing kind of this chess game where they want they ultimately want the syrian government to fall and they want to use isis as like an end towards that and i would imagine probably you know in their military planning or whatever they're not thinking that okay we're going to install isis and they're going to murder a million alawites and you know like they they probably think okay well this group will probably be we could use them for a while and then maybe kind of like jettison them or just bomb them to hell or split them up or send send them send them somewhere else useful maybe send them maybe to xinjiang or something i don't know it mm. yeah it it just feels yeah, like uh, they like they were concocted mm. and and even though you know like also yeah joining the ypg then became like a based good moral thing to do even though some of the stuff i've read about it sounds like even by people's own admissions they were literally that there were like a lot of right fucked up people people yeah. in the ypg you know yes. yeah it was very funny i saw you know really german a biker drama games. that's been going on 
Twitter, which is a little bit of drama that's been going on on Twitter recently, at least recently as of this recording mm-hmm. between our uh, podcast and some others. Someone was saying something along the lines of, I don't know how uh, controversial this opinion maybe is, but what the Kurds are doing in Rojava is a noble cause, and I admire anyone who goes over there to help. But it's like, okay, so you admire a bunch of like, right-wing maniacs like right sector mercenaries uh like cannibals uh, you really admire let's not forget anyone let's not forget. who went there yeah. like anyone uh, who went there to help yeah people who uh, yeah. wanted well, then, like, to kill most of the people that you admire are just like bloodthirsty war tourists uh with emotional problems who yes want yes. to kill people just want to kill and people you know i think when isis is something that is like surging and seizing control of towns and seizing territory like a lot of people get pulled into isis because if you're not in isis then you might die they might just decide that you know you're rafida you know or something like that uh-huh. they might just exactly that, yeah exactly so there was a lot of coercion too where when isis like rolls into your village like what are you really supposed to do yeah it's, and if you're uh, not like you know it, i think that the yeah like and i also i'm not even sure to what extent i mean isis did like a, committed a lot of atrocities and there's yeah like it's not in any way uh acceptable or condonable but i do think that the difference between what would go on in you know among these groups that are not uh to be admired uh subliminal jihad only supports a subliminal jihad not uh <laughs> terrorism but i think that you know there's like rape and murder in like al-qaeda in general like it's a brutal situation it's basically like a violent gang within like a war zone Mm -hmm. where you know people are very desperate and they've been uh, invaded uh, by brutal occupying power as well so there's Mm -hmm. that and there's also the situation of like you know deep social tensions at play like in places like syria and iraq so the difference, like, of, you know, ISIS as being this, like, super brutal thing, I think that was, in comparison to, you know, other groups, I think that some of that was maybe window dressing. Well, I mean, like, I think is, that you know. even the, the, the concept of, like, the Free Syrian Army for most of the conflict was kind of window dressing for al-Nusra, and al-Nusra contained a lot of these elements. And there were, I remember videos, you know, of, like, before ISIS burst into Iraq of of like so-called FSA freedom fighters like executing prisoners like just shooting like you know 20 people in the back of the head yeah and I mean stuff I'm like sure that, that like, happens like really brutal sure kind of stuff happens. and then ISIS just took it to an even bigger level but I don't know maybe let's talk for a second about because their videos also got more and more sophisticated and perverse in the ways that they would kill people like remember when they caught that Jordanian pilot they uh, yes, like they had yeah, they it, it was fire. very yeah very occulty mm-hmm. very occulty basically where it's like all these guys yeah. in like yellow uh, ski masks like standing like hundreds of them in like fresh new like u.s military uh yeah, combat fatigue supposed to punish by fire that's not you know mm-hmm. to or you know by. like lower somebody put them in a car and like lower them into a river and then shoot an rpg at the car so it explodes while they're drowning like really twisted weird shit yes. like that and and then there's the name isis which just jumps out at you is like like it just it chills you a little bit like yeah. isis you know and also what is up or you know i or like i, I well, remember the islamic state the, i think was even more 
uh, powerful. Yeah, Isis, you know, obviously the Egyptian goddess Isis, but... Yeah, but, uh, but like even the confusion like the of the name... Islamic state, you know. The, the confusion yeah, of the name was very bizarre at the beginning. Like, like the, the Obama administration's insistence that we are not going to call it Isis. And, like, yeah. it it just was weird because everyone colloquially would call it Isis. ISIL. Yeah, I, think, I guess I it was some ISIL kind of a... Yeah, probably like you know, uh, Cass Sunstein like told him it would nudge people towards supporting them if you gave him, yeah, let possibly. him have that cool name. Yeah. So ISIL just sound, sounded weird, and then there was a, a like Daesh uh, after a while that was Daesh, kind of in yeah. French. The the French and the Kurds seemed to prefer that, and then there was like the Islamic State um, or uh, I, did they start calling them IS? I forget after a while. IS short for Islamic State. Yeah, they Yes. Yes. Know, th- that but I always thought that ISIL, yeah. it was like especially John Brennan was so fanatically committed to calling them ISIL and I mean Obama was too, but you know, what was he covering up? John you know, I, we, yeah, we I know feel like ISIL, like because of the way it ends, it sounds like weasel. You know, it's just like not ISIS yeah. is a much catchier name. Uh, yeah. So I think that that might have been the calculus behind it. But yeah, you know, there was and, a and what was I forget what it was in in Arabic. It was like a Dalat a Dalat Islami or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Dalat Islam, yeah. Islamic State. Yeah, Dalat Islam. Uh, yeah. 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 So, um, so it's just I don't know, but ISIS obviously brings up like the goddess, and it just feels like they're almost like a death cult, and that yeah, you know I they're going around blowing up. Oh, my God! I, I, I should I put in a sheet in this episode? I might. Uh, uh, I don't know if I want to boost it, that. but yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, I still uh, have a few. Mm. Um, you know yeah no i was actually i came upon i guess this is a pretty old article but i came upon it pretty recently which is uh, just called like why iraqis living under the islamic state fear their liberators and it was in wapo Mm -hmm. so it's like pretty normie not an idea that uh, people in that general world would you often see them uh you know like uh the idea that anything is possibly worse than isis but so yeah just is about most sunnis don't support the islamic state in fact an overwhelming majority of iraqi sunnis oppose the islamic state. If so many Sunnis oppose the Islamic State, why are they so concerned about the Iraqi army? Shiite militia, militias, uh, Shiite militias, and Kurdish Peshmega working to liberate them. The answer lies in the collective identity that Sunni Iraqis hold, and the sense that their community is will not be treated fairly by the Shia-dominated Iraqi government and its allies. This is, I think, a little bit different from what I, this is a different article maybe, but mm-hmm. same principle, you know, the idea that it's a lot muddier there in in general yeah yeah no i and i think you know these are things that like the 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 sort of nato and the u.s national security apparatus were kind of playing with and maybe trying to exploit a little bit that you know they they knew that there were these pretty heavy tensions going on and you know between the north and the shia south Mm -hmm. and with the kurds as well and it's like okay well we'll give you a kind of force to like quote unquote liberate you but it's going to be like basically the most toxic kind of a negative version of that force possible of like sunni representation possible and then that's going to give us an excuse to come in and start bombing the shit out of iraq all over again and syria you know and i mean they basically pounded it's reading again recently just how hard they pounded raqqa so in a way it's like wherever isis pops up we get a license to go in and like 
reduce the place to absolute rubble. And they never talk about civilian casualties with all their drone strikes that you call in on an iPad, do yeah, they? Yeah, no, well, you it doesn't know? matter because they're ISIS people. Well, yeah, no, when you're calling in an iPad, mm. uh, your drone strike on the iPad, you know, while you're tweeting huh? from your Lennon Lover account. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter <laughs> because, like, they're fi- those are just a bunch of uh, animals that are trying to destroy anarchism. So uh, we're smelling, cool. I believe the quote was, we're smelling men on planet. Uh, Arab men were. That's a direct quote. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're smelling yeah. men on planet. Cool, yeah. On planet. Uh, yeah. I bet they spell yeah. bad when their flesh has been charred and destroyed by the drone strike that you called them on the iPad. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, like this is actually the article that I was ta- uh, thinking of. It actually is in Foreign Policy magazine, and it's actually about the SDF. Uh, even though, like, you know, mm-hmm. Shia militia is like, they're not, like, you know, heroic. This is a brutal situation, but apparently there would be, when the SDF came in, a lot of the Arab Sunnis were having, you know, their houses confiscated, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the author says, my friends and I ask each other questions like, is it better for one's house to stay standing or level to the ground? Someone will be mistaken for a Daesh's house and thus confiscated. The SDF only confiscates ISIS houses, one of my friends replies, but ISIS confiscates hundreds of houses in the course of the last four years, another remarks. If the SDF confiscates houses that were initially confiscated by the Islamic State, Will they ever be returned to their original owners? Uh, uh, sounds they, like some same yeah. old, uh, same old settler colonialism going on. Not new under the sun. You're moving mm-hmm. into like Not a, a crazy yes. frontier, and you're dispossessing the native-born residents of that place so that you can scoop up all of the oil underneath the ground, which they've already done now with the help of the SDF. Yes, and and they and, 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 and kind of like white ethnically cleansed it. Uh, oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought mm-hmm. gas killing yes. animal Assad was the only one that used white phosphorus uh no apparently the SDF does as well yeah the author says this a friend of mine who attempted to move from Raqqa last month the city of Manbij an Arab majority city located in Aleppo's eastern countryside which is under SDF control with his wife and four little daughters was forced by the SDF into a transit camp on his way the camp one of several the group established to conduct background checks for fear of Islamic State infiltration is located in a fenced off yard of a cotton storage facility in the town of Ain Issa 30 miles north of Raqqa the town was mm. captured in 2015 by the People's Protection Units, the Kurdish forces that forms the backbone of the SDF. The UN mm-hmm. Refugee Agency estimates there are 9,000 people hosted in and around the camp. SDF collects IDs of those who leave Raqqa and send them to camps where they are being mistreated, my friend said. They keep people up to 15 days under the sun to film them uh, as being taken care of. We had nothing but bread in the morning. My friend was there for three days. He said his family was forced to sleep in their car while he slept on the ground. His group had to protest to get their identification cards back. We were beaten for it, he said. I wish I stayed in Raqqa. Wow. Not a good, uh, yeah, yeah, not a good, like, trip advisor review to get. I wish yeah, I'd stayed no, in Raqqa. No, not a good one. This is another amazing yeah. one. Uh, Ahmad, a middle-aged man who owned a currency exchange shop in Raqqa's Al-Mansur Street before feeding to Manbij, favors the SDF. Under the FSA, I couldn't keep my shop open, f- open fearing looting, uh, looting for any reason. Under ISIS, businesses like mine thrive as they protected our properties. You couldn't come to my shop with a pocket filled uh, with $100,000. You wouldn't bother about safety. You could come to my shop with a pocket filled with $100,000. You wouldn't bother about safeties. Now under the SDF, it's just as safe, with the exception that we don't have to pay zakat. 
All right. <laughs> so I guess he preferred ISIS to the FSA, uh, okay. but he doesn't have to pay his zakat. Uh, wow. All right, wow. nice. So it's cool. Mm, okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm also reading about the huge. I found a Medium article like that. I knew this is a little bit of a thing, but the huge proliferation of like biker gangs, uh, largely from like Germany, that have gone to fight with the YPG and the SDF. And, you know, mm-hmm. they're like the Median Empire Motorcycle Club had, you know, a unit, yeah. I think, uh, with the PKK. And let's see. Yeah, there's a lot of like Dutch people. A lot of them do have like Kurdish roots. So but then there's other people like Hans Schneider, who's in the uh, Median Empire. Christian Bidmore is Austrian. And let's see. No Surrender is a Netherlands-based biker gang uh, founded by Klaus Otto. They've been in the media for attempted liquidations, i.e. killings of other gang members and criminals, and drug trafficking. Uh, a Spanish foreigner, Paco Ariano, has been pictured with several notable leading members of the No Surrender gang, including Hank Kuipers, uh, the then-president of this biker gang. And, you know, this is written in, like, 2018. It's all, like, one... It's basically Hell's Angels, kind of, you know, 1%. I think the Mongols sent some people there uh, to fight with both the Peshmerga and the YPG and the Bandidos Motorcycle Club. Uh, there's some British ones, and... Yeah, I mean, uh, it's... Uh, yeah, there was definitely at least one guy who was, like, in right sector. Sjord Heger, he was a 24-year-old participated in the Raqqa offensive. Not only did he fight in Syria, but he had also fought along to the extreme right-wing militia, Pravi Sector. He was mm-hmm. active on websites of topics like Pure Europe were being discussed. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah, well, the other thing is, uh, the other thing that just shows you kind of the bizarro nature of all this is, I'm trying to find the article right now. Yeah, this is from 2020, from the EU. uh, There's a bunch of things, actually, from, like, respected think tanks. Ukraine is a safe haven for jihadists. So, you know, thousands of, I guess at this point, thousands of foreign fighters who were fighting for ISIS, a lot of them Chechnyan, went back and were found to be fighting with the right-wing militias like Pravi Sector in Ukraine against, you know, the Russian-backed separatists. And that was happening as recently, or as far I'm back sure maybe, that, as yeah. 20, 2015, yeah. 2016. So there's like, a, there's like an ISIS right sector, kind of Pravi Sector, uh, neo-Nazi, Ukrainian kind of pipeline going on, it seems, that maybe, I mean, maybe the Chechens are kind of the the glue that stitches yeah, well, that together a little that bit. That guy, uh, and I think a couple of other, yeah, I'm finding now, you know, just having looked this up, Benjamin Fisher is another one, uh, in addition to Heger. They were YPG fighters. So There's, you see, like, you know, yeah, yeah you a see, lot like, of so Israelis said, who went there to help. Uh, a lot of Israelis. With the, yeah, they empathize with the Kurdish cause, uh, seeing it as being similar to... And I think mm-hmm. uh, they were right. Yeah. So, like, at least a few hundred former fighters of the uh, of the Islamic Caliphate chose Ukraine for their place to stay after it kind of collapsed in, you know, 2017, mm-hmm. 2018. You know, this is, like, same old kind of right-wing, like, rat lines of, like, these kind of uh, terrorist fighters. I mean, also the big elephant in the room is that the military commander, the top military commander of ISIS was Abu Omar al-Shashani, who was a Georgian and... A Georgian Chechen who, you know, it, you can look it up, like, if you want. Like, he basically was trained by U.S. Special Forces in the Georgian Army in the late 2000s. And then he supposedly, like, went rogue. And, yeah, I see here in the Seattle Times, 
quote, star pupil, Pied Piper of ISIS recruits, was trained by U.S. Abu, Arma, Abu Omar al-Shashani, former American-trained NCO in the Special Forces of the Nation of Georgia, is now the most important non-Arab figure in the Islamic State group hierarchy. You know, so, like, what's up with that? Did we just lose him? Uh, like, what what happened? You know, why is he going to fight with ISIS? And, you know, he's also the kind of guy that would probably fight, you know, I mean, there was that weird invasion in Georgia, like, south of Setia, uh, or Setia in 2008. Right, yeah. And mm-hmm. they, they wanted, a, like, the Bush administration wanted Georgia to join NATO or some shit. And that seems that's, that's around the time that he was a young man who got into the uh, got into the army and then was a part of these like joint U.S. special forces training program. And they basically, yeah, they say, uh, okay, th- this is kind of interesting. And you know, the direct they say, according to his ex comrades in the Georgian military, Batirashvili, his real name, was tapped immediately upon his enlistment to join Georgia's U.S. trained special forces. He was a perfect soldier from his first days, and everyone knew he was a star, said one former comrade, who asked not to be identified because he remains on active duty and has been ordered not to give media interviews about this former colleague. We were well trained by American Special Forces units, and he was the star pupil. None of the people who knew Batirashvili during his military service noted any sort of dedication to Islam or jihadist tendencies, but that's not considered particularly unusual in a country where Muslims tend to adhere to a more moderate strain of Sufi Islam, despite Chechnya's reputation as an incubator of extremism. Quote, Chechens have a reputation as crazy Islamic warriors, but our Islam has always been moderate, according to one Pankisi community and clan leader who's been ordered by the government not to talk about any, about the man many Georgians laughingly refer to as Pankisi's most famous son. That reputation for moderation, however, began to change in the wake of the Chechen Wars, which devastated Chechnya, and by the construction in 2000 of a second mosque to serve the valley's six small villages. Now, this is interesting. The new mosque, the community leader said, was built with a donation from Saudi Arabia and, quote, preached a kind of alien Wahhabi-style Islam, not the Sufi-style Islam that had characterized the region for hundreds of years. Quote, it told our people that it was wrong to pray at graves of saints and ancestors, as our people have done for hundreds of years, and even to share our religious rights with our Christian brothers. By the mid-2000s, multiple residents say the situation had split the community mostly by age, with the original Sufi mosque attended by the older members of the community, while the young people were radicalized by the new mosque. This led to significant tensions with police until it resolved by a revolution almost a thousand miles away. Quote, they all started leaving for Syria, the community leader said. Things are safer here now because all the radicals, our children, have gone to Syria. American and Georgian intelligence estimates uh, put that number between 150 and 200 young men who have left Pankisi to fight in Syria. Huh. I mean, that's like, so, okay, so, I mean, that's an interesting, like, microcosm example of Saudi Arabia kind of going, and, you know, you can check me if I'm being too, uh, if if I'm getting some things wrong, but the idea that, okay, you know, you have the U.S. military there kind of identifying gifted young soldiers to be taken into this, like, U.S. Special Forces training program, and then around 2000, like, right before uh, 9-11, you have Saudi Arabia funding this new mosque for, like, this entire valley, And they come in and preach a kind of alien Wahhabi-style Islam that kind of uh, causes dissension between the older generation and the young kids. And then in this kind of small rural place, like 150 to 200 uh, of these people in Pankisi end up going to fight in Syria, one of them becoming the head military commander of ISIS. Yeah, I mean, that's a common story. Like, I think that it is something that... You know, in terms of that's just like Saudi's MO in general is to mm-hmm. f- 
fund Nasaji and, and just like promote their view of Islam, you know, uh, and try to sort of homogenize their religion with their projects. But, you know, it is a, yeah, it is a, a sus thing that goes on and it definitely does contribute to the politics of the, what, you know, Muslim world, the Muslim yeah. countries, it, you know, it's a huge factor well, and also i mean i it does make me think about how this would be a perfect cover if you're going to target certain populations to enlist into a kind of uh you know uh, wahhabi mercenary army that was going to go around the world and uh wreak havoc in the countries that you targeted that you know you'd have the military kind of doing its thing with maybe certain military people but also just like if you had intelligence assets basically inside of these mosques or they doubled as intelligence assets and they actually had a goal. I'm not saying that's like every Saudi mosque that's ever been built is filled with like secret Wahhabi terrorist recruiters. Definitely not saying that. But in places mm-hmm. like this, where it's kind of like the picking is ripe for these type, if you get some people when they're young and kind of get them a little bit hyped up, and you know, I, I'm sure the Saudis kind of probably like look down on, you know, Georgian or Chechen people as kind of like not as, you know, important as them. I mean, like, no, their own people aren't as important as them, you know, so the idea of kind of, you know, finding a population where it's like it's poor, it's remote, there's not a lot of opportunities and you can build a big new institution that does exactly what they did in Pakistan and Afghanistan and kind of regions around that in the 80s, like when the Afghan war was going on, where, you know, like there were those books that were financed by the CIA and maybe like paid for by the Saudis that, you know, were all all the math problems in the children's books were like, if you have like three grenades and you throw one at like a Soviet invader, like and martyr yourself, like how many grenades do you have left? You know, it was like literally stuff like that that they were teaching kids, like normalizing uh, militant you know, basically uh, this kind of militant uh, aspect. So I think, you know, we might be looking at kind of like a decades-long project that I think definitely the U.S. is probably the prime driver of and also involves Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries. I think Israel is, like, definitely in there somewhere. And I think they've Mm -hmm. even provided... I I think they definitely were providing some kind of covert support to the Kurd, the based Rojava Kurds, I think. Or they yeah. definitely they definitely were encouraging of that because they don't like Syria. They'd love to see Syria get balkanized. So, you know, and and nobody's looking at them while ISIS is running around. I mean, it it also makes Israel kind of look good and like justifies their policies as well. Though I'm not I'm not going to go a full like, oh like ISIS is a Zionist creation. I think it's <laughs> kind of conven- it's convenient for Zionism to some degree. I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's convenient. And it also has ideological like the uh, well, not ISIS, but the the Kurdish self-determination struggle has ideological parallels. But Didn't, yeah, wait, I think that. Uh, yeah, like maybe uh, we'll probably we'll move on in a sec. But the last thing I want to say is like, you know, weren't like so many of the YPG supporters like super about like settlers and Sakai but then if, like, you turned around and said that Rojava was doing, like, a version of settlers' <laughs> colonialism, they would lose their shit. Mm-hmm. I, I forget I, I forget to what extent that discourse even happened, but it more just stands out as, like, a very odd kind of contradiction of, you know, like, the people that are most likely to be obsessed with, like, everything's a settler or whatever. Uh, and, well, I mean, I think we mentioned, like, you know, that, like, that, that tweet from a while back of somebody posting, like, this is what, like, the liberated map of, like, America will be. And it was, like, kind of, it was, like, 500, like, micronations. And it's, like, 
Yeah, they just want a world of like a million based Rojavas, all like they tiny do little want that. like you know and that who's yes, that convenient because for? they really believe that like uh sunnis and shia are like incapable of living together they think that every single like tiny faction like can't possibly because they're fools because they don't know history like they mm-hmm. don't know like how recent these things are and how like they don't understand how because a lot of the time like their informants like their counselors are people like the saudis who just say like whatever is to their benefit which is just like well you know it's cool that we are like funding all of these messages and just like just you know mm-hmm. undermining like cultural heritage sites or discouraging like ancient practices of like tomb visitation and things like that or you know not ancient but venerable it's kind of funny uh, that they're almost doing like a they're doing like an like a, a little bit of like a Xinjiang from like the other angle of being like your version of islam isn't enough like ours so like we need to we're gonna like do these kind of uh you know well that's exactly actually they kind of are aggressively try to yeah like we're trying to aggressively regulate how you worship book, your islam a book that i recommend for anyone who's sitting in in Xinjiang or in, or in uyghur islam is uh the sacred roots of uyghur history uh not a perfect book but a very interesting book that talks about basically uh, sufi-esque practices or saint veneration and and tomb visitation among uh, uyghurs in uh, xinjiang basically like the tactics the prc uses to destroy the cultural identity of uyghurs is exactly the same as what saudi does in mecca in medina and anywhere they can which is Mm. destroy like the centers of spiritual life like the tombs of saints of, of sufi saints so wow, uh, and, wow. that's interesting yeah and you know what's even mm-hmm. more interesting than that is like if again it's like if china was so concerned about the threat of a kind of wahhabi jihad is you know jihadi islam that was going to stoke separatism first of all like why do you help like bill casey do they like support them in afghanistan but also they let the saudis build a bunch of mosques i think even in Xinjiang for like the last 30 years so they've just been letting the Saudis build these style of mosques all around their country. And now they're like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this is a problem. But like they're not actually I don't think I don't know. Like it still seems they're on pretty good relations with the Saudis overall and aren't certainly aren't calling them out. You know, you notice that China like never yeah. really calls out Saudi Arabia. They talk about no, how they don't. They might allude they to the do. West kind of causing trouble, mm-hmm. but never Saudi Arabia. Yeah, they, I mean, they are like, you know, they have pushback against the ideas of mosques being like Arabized, you know, uh, and that's like one of their big talking points, but it obviously doesn't stop there. Like, and when they, I remember reading one thing about how they just like demolished like a classical Chinese style mosque. And then, hmm. uh, you know, a new Arab mosque was like rebuilt and they were like, well, this mosque is Arabized. Weird, yeah. but they let them do it. Yeah, they well, they let them do it, but also it's disingenuous. Like, their concern about it being Arab, like, isn't the problem. Like, it really is Uyghur Islam in general that is being cracked down upon, or even Hui Islam. A lot so of the time. You're, say, you're saying it's like they're more hostile to the, the more, like, indigenous traditions of kind of, you know, uh, like Uyghur, Hui Islam than they are to the kind of foreign, more sus, like, Wahhabi financed like version that you'd think would be the one they'd be most worried about if they're worried about terrorism but you're saying they're kind of not like they're more worried about kind of snuffing like you know stomping out or kind of erasing the more like yeah deeply rooted like ethno well i think that their i mean their argument isn't like you know really one that people can empathize with 
in general because it's not really about terrorism. It's about like air of, you know, they might use that excuse maybe in some discourses, but really they are just like, well, you know, this is foreign, so this isn't good. But that is, I think, disingenuous because they also, that doesn't stop there ever. Uh, oh, I see. You're saying that like they they ju- they say like the only reason we're cracking down on this mosque is because it's Arabized. Otherwise, we yeah, don't have exactly. a problem with it. But they're shutting but down the, mosques as well. But there were well. tons of. But the reason why all these mosques are being built is because like the earlier mosques that were in Chinese style architecture were destroyed. So what the hell? What know. the hell is going on? With like you know, it's like why did why did you destroy the original ones and then let the Saudis come in? And build, I don't know. It's just you know, like what's really going on with that? It doesn't seem, uh, it doesn't seem great. But you know, um, yeah. So I don't know. Bottom line, ISIS, uh, very sus. Michael Aquino was a fan. Apparently, he thought they should have their own polity. And mm-hmm. yes, you know, they're they're more uh, stuff that will they'll come up a lot as a reference point. And you know, I. I I don't know. Like I said, uh, finding that sergeant guy, that whistleblower, Greg Ford, one day, maybe we can get him to come on SJ and tell us about meeting Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in Samara in 2003 <laughs> before he got taken off and tortured and MK'd at uh, Abu Ghraib. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sus. Pretty sus. Um, and YPG sus as well. We, You know, the there's no way around it. You know? Yes. Definitely um, is incredibly uh, sus. Yeah. I want you to think about something. I want you to think about all the things that people have said to you that have bothered you. I had people telling me, you'll never be this, you'll never be that, you'll never do this, you're crazy. We all get beat up. We all have frustration. We all have things that hurt us internally. Things that beat us down and make us want to quit. People get pushed to the brink. They get pushed to the edge. And it's what you do when you get to that edge that determines what you're going to be. Go be a bitch or do the fucking work. So many of you guys give up. You need to take everything that everybody said and shove it down their fucking throats. You know why? Because it feels fucking good. Positivity is extremely overrated when it comes to motivation. I'm a big believer and thankful for all the negativity I've dealt with in my life. All the people who made it hard. All the people who fucking made shit much harder than it had to be. I love those people. I should write them a fucking thank you card. Because if it wasn't for those motherfuckers, I wouldn't be who the fuck I am. When you get to that point of frustration, of anger, of being pissed off, that is tremendous fucking fuel for you to go out and do the shit that you want to do. Where you've had enough. You look at yourself in the mirror and you're fucking disgusted. You're you're sick and tired of your life. 
It's what you do at that point that fucking matters. You want to read the follow-up from Future Shock here? Uh, Future Shock's follow-up is... Uh, also, as a secondary question, what's your opinion on mass shootings as mass ritual? There's clearly some strategy of tension stuff going on, but I'd love to hear your take, too. Will we be getting a mass shooter episode at any point, or perhaps a deep dive on Stephen Paddock slash Parkland slash Columbine, etc.? A Paddock deep dive would be great. Oh, this is a not Fox Mulder added. Uh, a Paddock deep dive would be great because TA seemed to dance around uh, many things, even in their SJ length episode. I guess TA refers to True and On. Uh, and I resent the implication that they had a, a <laughs> uh, SJ length episode. Well, they did like an hour and a half long. Let me look up how long it was. <laughs> Stephen Paddock episode. I didn't listen like, to it, so I don't know. It's kind of, yeah, uh, I didn't listen to it either, but I did n- notice people talking about it. Yeah, so the idea that... Uh, I, think I think it wasn't have, as yeah. long... It wasn't yeah. as long as our shortest episode, and I'm including the ones we split into two. Yeah, so... <laughs> It's okay, though. It's okay. Anyway, uh, it's okay. It's okay. No, Um, not Fox is coming from a a good place here. You know, they. He is coming from a good place. Yes. He just wants uh, a paddock deep dive. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit in our Ed Offerman episode, which probably will be out by the time this is out. That has a little bit of discourse on it. But there's more. You know, there's there's definitely more there. Uh, We mentioned. What do you think about claim? Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, what do you think about, you know, we just kind of were talking about it, but uh, the mass shootings as mass ritual? I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, I think of Christchurch often, where I think that it's so, like, revoltingly mediatized. Like, the way he filmed it just seems mm-hmm. like, you know, a mass sh- uh, shooting. Not a mass shooting, like a uh, first-person shooter video game, you know? Uh, yes. The way that people participate in these things and the imagination of the shooters, I think there definitely is. Is, uh, well, depending upon the shooter, I think that there's definitely, I mean, it has become something that's ritualized, you know, it's a ritualized, routine, normative part of culture in the same way that, like, you know, in Abbasid, Iraq, people say that it's, oh, ritualized for elites to go to monasteries and, like, drink alcohol made by monks there or something, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not, whatever your discourse on that are, it's ritualized for disenfranchised young males to shoot people like disenfranchised unstable you know disconsolate or whatever antisocial young males to mm-hmm. go commit a mass shooting in public pu- publish some kind of manifesto you know as a way to make their mark on society uh, to express their feelings of alienation or, or whatever so it definitely mm-hmm. is a component of our society and there's also the, obviously the ritualized outpouring of grief the ritualized refrains of you know we need this solution you know but like no that's yeah, not the enough, hashtag strong so you know yeah exactly uh or the facebook yes, filters all kinds of stuff like that yeah or je suis mm-hmm. charlie yeah but also Oh, God, that was the worst. But also, you know, and really even the ritualized conspiracy theorizing as well. And all these uh, aspects of it recur, you know, there's always the confusion. You know, how many shooters are there? How many shooters? And every time. Oh, there three shooters. How many shooters? Yeah, exactly. Every time there's all these details that don't quite ever come together. 
Yeah, like the San Bernardino. uh, Repeatedly, there were Mm -hmm. three shooters there, got reduced to two. The Dallas one where they creepily all night. I think uh, you might have been visiting me at the time when we watched that when it was happening, that that, like 2016 shooting where for hours they talked about how they had been caught in like a triangulated kill zone, the cops, and there were, you know, two, there were three shooters that were doing, and they kept mentioning after that that, that this was happening just like steps away from Dealey Plaza where JFK was shot. And they just kept repeating it over and over and over again. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, stop. Why are you keep talking about how there's like three shooters that did it? And you're also keep mentioning the trad. Oh, the, the poignance of that. This is right where JFK got shot. And then it finds out, Oh, it's just one crazy guy doing it the whole time. And there was just a lone gunman and we blew him up with a drone robot. End of story, you know? <laughs> and, uh, that, and that guy was a U.S. military veteran. Uh, uh, you know, and yeah. so like, there's definitely a gladio strategy of tension aspect to a lot of that stuff. I mean, there was just such a. I remember there there was really was a spat of that in like 2015 and 2016, and then just sort of like stopped after Trump got elected. But then there, well, but then there was like then it switched to like the Chan shooter. But it all did kind of follow a similar rubric and like a uh, framework like yeah like the manifesto yeah well i the, think that there in, were even before trump there were i mean it wasn't as trump obviously like changed the political discourse radically and mm-hmm. the those like it is true you know as much of a lib take as this is it's absolutely true that trump did do a lot to make people uh of a white supremacist or like a right-wing reactionary persuasion feel empowered and feel like you know it was somehow their moment and that they had to take action like that it was a political change where those people came to the fore more but there were still people largely in the same vein you know maybe the rhetoric changed slightly but like the aurora shooter wasn't that different uh from yeah you yeah know, and also uh, really Joker big mk guy. vibes with him i mean he he yeah. yeah there was that whole weird again with the revisionist kind of history of initially they're like he said i am the joker when they arrested him and then it turns out like he never said that right <sighs> you know it's just very well bizarre. yeah that so was like I, a thing yeah. where that also happened when the joker movie came out people are like there's yep. gonna be a mass shooting at the joker yeah. you know like they i right? don't, Isn't I don't know wild? what is going on with talk about a mass ritual uh the evil clown blah blah mm-hmm. i don't know what's yep. going on with the joker but they they want it they want a clown to psychotically murder people uh, i don't know they why. do but the anyway, evil clown uh, yeah, yeah exactly so i think in an yeah. sk bane sense like there are there often have been like weird little synchronicities or i'm co- sure not even an sk bane sense so. i'm sure in, yeah i'm sure in sk bane's actual opinion like most <laughs> mass shootings are like yeah. mass rituals but i'm even thinking about you know going back to christchurch again like in terms of the last question that you received like uh, all the themes of that like the themes of it having to do with islam with the west you know the way that it was framed in his manifesto it's really like the same genre as like an isis attack uh Mm -hmm. and the same sort of spectacle aspect of it yeah the propaganda of the deed Uh, basically railing against the civilizational order or a threat to that civilizational order either way yes Mm -hmm. and really kind of nihilistic either way yeah they work perfectly together like isis is something that that type of individual thrives on and vice versa it's uh it's yeah. pretty creepy and yeah i think i think at some point um definitely a stephen paddock um the parkland shooting we talked about elsa gate and all that weird shit and also columbine the og that kicked it all off really yeah, you know the there's a, i've always wanted to go back to columbine and study more 
about the weird like you I've know, seen the, some these people doing some sus stuff about co- like saying some new stu- sus aspects of Columbine uh, mm-hmm. recently so that might be interesting I remember too. you know they had Nazi yeah. like Nazi flags in their room but then the parents claimed that they just like never went in their room so they never noticed the huge swastika flag it's just, <laughs> I remember that when I was like a kid and that was in the news I was like what yeah, there's just a lot of uh, weird, and you know that's that whole era area of Colorado is just sus. Like you know, then you had the Aurora shooting, and then what was the most recent thing we had in Colorado that was so uh, there awful? There was another one. Wasn't it a supermarket shooting? Yeah, there was yeah. like the crazy guy who went in and shot people, like the guy from Cobra, and then just walked outside and like right, took his clothes right. off or something. Very bizarre. Yeah, so I don't know. It's very and then there was weird, the Asian um, uh, murder. That happens, you know. The, oh yeah, the, 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 the spa, the, yeah, the Asian massage parlor. Yeah. God, yeah, they're kicking up again, and they all seem to like they they definitely get plugged in and kind of used for ideological purposes once they happen. Well, now. yeah, it's every time it happens, people just like jump on it. Every time, you know, everyone everyone is like just wanting it to be, you know, this. Or if like, I have you know, to hear like one a, more, like, like yo, if I have yeah. to hear one more lib like do a variation on like fuck your thoughts and prayers i'm gonna like go and say yeah because it's just like okay we get it okay we fucking get it like like, that's more Mm -hmm. annoying than people saying thoughts and prayers at this point is people making fun of people for saying thoughts and prayers like at what what point are you like they're just kind of like gaslighting you or like pressuring you into like passing some kind of gun control thing they'll crave but like if you're not gonna do that then like you saying that you sympathize with the victims like you're a monster. I don't know. It's just like annoying. It's like shut up. Like stop being so stop it's trying the to take new the guns. Because scr- that also doesn't do anything. Like you saying yeah. like you know. You're right. Stop you're saying right. Thoughts and prayers does nothing it, either. Yeah. It uh-huh. certainly exactly. Does, I mean, praying always has an effect. Uh, if it's you know you have the yeah in your heart, but saying some bullshit on Twitter doesn't always have an effect. So no, uh, no it doesn't. Yeah. So one is less it, efficacious it, it, than the other. Yeah, but but that's uh, they, they keep yeah. like kind of brute forcing it. It's like they did like a I don't know like a trial run of like let's send five like program to kill like young men out there just to like massacre a bunch of people and see if we can move the needle. And uh, it didn't seem like it really worked, but. You know, try again. I mean, is that is that what they're doing? I think what whatever this is is much bigger than simply wanting to pass like a gun control bill or simply wanting to stir up maybe political tensions or something like that. It feels like, you know, yeah. it, it does go back to Gladio and even before, even before like false flags ain't nothing new. Uh, and you know, agents ain't or people that are manipulated. You know, like people that are manipulated into, you know, assassinating a politician or doing a massacre that gets blamed on certain people. That has been going on for a very long time. So I think it is naive to think that I'm still like Stephen Paddock. I I, I still there's like so much susness that I I do have to do more research because I haven't really refreshed myself in a while. But it does feel like there's maybe some sus like money laundering arms dealer also getting mk by joker poker kind of stuff going on yes and you definitely was mk by the joker poker gin um, i think we but, should also like yeah. maybe I, I don't know because uh, i have yeah i, I right joker yeah. poker there you go again it's like jo- mm-hmm. i mean joker, joker and then elsagate who's a star of elsagate all the time doing bad things 
No, oh, yes. Well, Spider Man probably is the is the well, biggest one, but also the Joker. Spi- yes. uh, yeah, I mean, Spidey's kind of a Spidey Spider-Man can be naughty at times. Yeah, Spider Man and Elsa, yeah. but like, but who's the main antagonist that does a lot of creepy shit? Like, probably like Joker, is yeah. is like Elsa's dentist who pulls out like a big needle and you know that kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. It's like right, usually exactly. the Joker who does Elsa's, that. Turns Elsa's fingers into snakes or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or like, yeah, what? Um, yeah, oh my god, it's so creepy. But you know that that is a uh, yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into it one day. I don't know if what they're saying that True and Undanced around because I didn't listen to it. Uh, I, I wonder if they discussed, probably not in that short running time, but if they discussed that kind of wild theory that it was all about like actually an attempt to like assassinate Mohammed bin Salman at like the Four Seasons Hotel and there was like crossfire from like other like helicopters and shit. I remember that. I think, I forget who was kind of like rolling that out there. I feel like it was probably discredited, but it was definitely a wild hot take on what was going on. You know, it's kind of the ultimate ISIS attack. Like it was, you know, some kind of like Saudi internal shootout that was like, sounds like a set piece from a Brian De Palma movie. Honestly, it's like, there's a sniper at a tower at a country music festival in Las Vegas. And then like deep state, like Saudi intelligence assets or like Blackwater mercenaries are like sniping at, Mohammed bin Salman's like penthouse suite with like a 50 cal rifle <laughs> while people shoot at them from helicopters <laughs> like it's so I don't know like but that was a thing that was kind of floated out there and um the other you know what the other thing was that I remember there was like a weird thing you know that journalist Greg Pallast uh no, no I don't I forget what he was. He's a super two thousands guy. Uh, maybe it was like maybe it was like all like alternet or like one of those old websites that he kind of wrote for all the time. He did a lot of stuff about how like the two thousand four election might have been like stolen by Bush. But he he's also in this kind of weird democracy now kind of like pro Julian Assange like weird little orbit. And he did like a video after the Vegas shooting with Shailene Woodley, the actress, and he was talking about how he like went to high school with Stephen Paddock. And like then and then but it was like this very like kind of like weirdly like consciously produced sort of video of them like walking through this town in the San Fernando Valley where I guess Paddock and him both grew up and maybe Shailene Woodley grew up there, too, which is why she was talking to him. And he was just saying like, yeah, like, you know, that's the he was talking, making some argument about how like the fact the Boeing factory or something in their town like shut down and everybody that didn't get out from his high school class like ended up being kind of fucked up and like had no economic future and almost making this argument of like yeah this is what happens when we like de-industrialize and like don't take care of people and like don't have economic Mm -hmm. justice like Stephen Paddock goes on a rant it was just weird (laughs) it was just like a weird fucking take to have on the whole thing as if like that was the most explanatory aspect of what happened he had a lot of money he like wasn't poor uh, yeah, yeah. As far as we and know. he did work for and Boeing, he, I believe he, he worked for Boeing a, a, as a younger person, you know. So and mm-hmm. then he worked like all around the world and had his money from Joker Poker and had all these guns. Like, what? It just seems yeah, like just eh, we're doing, doing an wrong. arsenal like uh, for years. Yeah, I smell some like Pacifica limited hangout vibes of like let's reframe this to make it just like a sentimental story about how like we should have more like li- I don't know. Uh, 
<laughs> it's just the uh, kind of weird. But yeah, yeah we'll dive know. into it one day. I mean, it is weird how that's like just been because it's so inscrutable and like the it doesn't really have like any kind of like clear motive. You know, it's not like Dylan Roof, who we hear about all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. he was a white supremacist, or even yeah. Elliot Roger, who another another pre-Trump kind of incel type guy uh, who yeah. you still hear about sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. the supreme gentleman as he called oh, yeah. himself uh you still hear about that uh you still hear about like even the aurora shooter i think i feel like you still hear about because there's like a little whiff of like politicization with the joker <laughs> you know yeah, the bat- it's, like, it's the batman uh, connection the, that the freaks highest, people out the highest level of politics is when it has to do with marvel <laughs> or you know whatever <laughs> uh so yeah yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like with Stephen Paddock, it's like just so inscrutable that that's kind of really fallen into the background. Even though it was a huge mass shooting, it was one of the most deadly ever. Yeah, yeah, it was massive, and history. you're right. They memory hold yeah. it pretty damn quick after it became clear that they remember when they had like the guy who apparently shot him like disappeared, like the security guard, and they were like they they couldn't like produce him for several days, and they're like uh he uh and like they kept changing the story it was just so bizarre and they, it's like they didn't have a good narrative to roll out to kind all of all i remember was like all the fucking people on right-wing twitter being like he was an isis source isis you know like uh <laughs> th- yeah thanks well th- that's also true as well for how big it was the difficulty that people had politicizing it makes it a little bit unique in the kind of annal of mass shootings like it, you couldn't categorize yeah. it as a this is an isis guy or this is a trump white supremacist guy and the and, and yeah. you know the most you could say is like i guess uh, gun control because people people be crazy you know and, and so that was the yeah, extent to which mm-hmm. he was anti-country music i guess maybe so that's like truly paradoxical live. and it i think it did get trump to support banning bump stocks but i don't know if that already got overturned or not but i remember that was like the one time that trump kind of uh acceded you know basically conceded mm-hmm. some kind of like gun reform thing i don't know if they ever actually did it but just yeah really really weird and and couldn't be kind of instrumentalized it seems by any of the various kind of uh powerful factions and so that that puts an even bigger question mark on it because if you kind of think about the logic of like a gladio attack or some kind of false flag you do it with like an intended result in mind of like you want to get a reaction and use it to to maybe do something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do but like what was that with the paddock shooting um, to shoot a bunch of country music people like, like it was like a bunch of it was like a white on white attack it was like an old white dude with money shooting a bunch of like <laughs> yeah, white, mostly white, white country white. music it was fans the ultimate example of white on white crime yeah <laughs> um, so, yeah like what's the message there like you're attacking the whitest genre of music uh, i don't know you know i guess uh allegedly he did have some concerns about you know, after Hurricane Katrina, he allegedly said, you know, that it was a dr- the FEMA camps and stuff were a dry run for the law enforcement and military start kicking down doors, you know, uh, and hmm. confiscating guns, uh, Agenda 21. Okay, so he might have been a bit of a sovereign citizen. Probably. I mean, bit. he did have an arsenal, yeah. which people like that tend to be, but I don't know if that's yeah. the whole story there. Uh, I don't I think know either. That yeah, it was like that episode of the Twilight Zone where the guy, like, you know, is a, a morally upright guy who hates gambling, but, like, he, you know, gets seduced by, like, an evil... Not that Stephen Paddock ever hated gambling, but just, like, the aspect of, like, the satanic uh, slot machine that, like, taunts oh. him and, like, follows him to his room <laughs> with, like, the, the coin jingling sounds. Like, that's... Oh, my God. That happened, and that drove him insane, I think. Uh, yeah, it was Joker Poker doing it. 
in my opinion. Yeah, I think the clown from Joker Poker sat on his shoulder under a toadstool and drove him mad. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it's uh it's truly the Dracularity is immense at that one. So we'll we'll come back. We'll yes. come back. We'll do it justice. We'll do a good yeah, we'll subliminal jihad yeah, yeah, yeah. We just gotta exploration. Get, we just gotta put a yeah, a, a little bit of uh, air between between us and the uh, you know, the I'm sure inadequate exploration of it that occurred on on other podcasts uh, we uh, don't do tailism we only get tailed yeah exactly most of the time let's move on then to number 12 from it's drew time and he asks you may have gone into it already but what are your thoughts on don delillo early covid days reminded me of white noise yeah have you read white noise mm, yeah i do I do remember yeah i remember white noise um and i also remember a don delillo book that i thought was interesting was it was it white noise that i'm thinking of uh, again like you know these days i don't read too many novels but that was no the one i'm thinking of was a little bit different i think it had it was a more underworld uh, maybe it was falling man am i thinking of falling man that was the one about 9 11 right uh yeah mm-hmm. oh right. yeah yeah Mm-hmm. I yes, it's interesting. I I think I I, I think I, I kind of like Don DeLillo as far as you know American novelists of that like literary novelists of that kind of generation. Um, I would put him up mm-hmm. towards the top. However, I've I've only read White Noise. I probably read it like almost like eight or nine years ago, and I started reading Libra, which is about Lee Harvey Oswald, and is kind mm-hmm. of like a JFK conspiracy book. But I didn't get too super far into it. I believe that his the ultimate thing is kind of that like yeah there was a conspiracy, but kind of um I don't know. It's like JFK was like at, like he wasn't meant to actually be killed, and then he was. I don't know. Uh, I can't really mm-hmm. speak. He also wrote something called Mao Two, which uh, Mao Two. I haven't heard yeah. of that one or read it. Yeah, but you know, I mean, he did Underworld. I haven't seen the movie Cosmopolis or read it. I, I, it's kind of been on my list to like maybe read a little more because I think he's kind of. I did like White Noise a lot. I kind of forget. I know there's like the what, the airborne toxic event or whatever that happens that a lot of people were comparing to COVID and the, the vibes of COVID of like this ambiguous biological threat that is kind of lurking on the periphery of the novel and the town where it mm-hmm. takes place. And it's like, yeah, I think it gets into the kind of a like Baudrillard simulacrum kind of thing in a way. And mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and it's got, you know, it's got some weird kind of paranoid vibes and stuff like that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think. Uh, but I also kind of yeah. feel a little bit like he's kind of like the more I, I'm getting a little bit more into Pynchon that he's kind of like Pynchon light. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that he's kind of the vibe a bit more accessible than Pynchon, for sure. Yeah. He is. He is. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, because at least I think he, he there's some overlap there where... Um, yeah, there's... Mm-hmm. And I think that he's much more of a uh, Baudrillardian than Pynchon. I think maybe Pynchon is more of a, uh, I don't know, Mark Lombardi-type uh, materialist uh, take, where... Baudrillard is more about, yes, uh, simulacra and image and that type of thing, where I think that is more of a theme in, in Delillo's work, you know, uh, something that, you know, Baudrillard wrote about, uh, or, you know, I'm probably saying his name wrong because it's French, uh, but but yeah, anyway, so uh, he wrote about 9-11 as like a work of art, you know, of avant-garde art. I think that's a big theme 
in Falling Man, and I think it's a theme in uh in other things. You know, I was just looking up Mao too, and I think it's a, a similar idea that uh you know uh, in, in the book that novelists are becoming obsolete in an age where terrorism has supplanted art as the raids on consciousness that jolt and transform culture at large. Uh, one of the so heroes of the book, I guess. True. Yeah, it feels that like ISIS concern. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Like ISIS yes. and like Trump. Trump's yeah. kind of a, an aesthetic terrorist, uh, to quote that other scholar that we talked to. I think mm-hmm. he is kind of doing aesthetic terrorism. He's working evil in an evil medium, just like Kenneth Anger. Yes. Um, I did there notice there's an one intru- really weird Don DeLillo book, uh, Point Omega. Did you read that or hear about no, that? No, no. No, what is that? Yeah, about? that was kind of another like meditation on art. It was very odd. Uh, and I think y- there were some deliberate parallels to Gravity's Rainbow, or maybe just oh, people yeah. compared it to Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, one of the big sort of piece, uh, key pieces of it was the 24 um, hour psycho. Like, uh, basically, uh, psycho slowed down so that it would last for 24 hours, like a, mm. uh, an actual conceptual art piece that was created in 1993. Yeah. It's yeah. like I, a, I see that, a yeah, very it, odd it, book. Yeah. It's said to share with. Uh, gravity's rainbow the kind of idea that uh, capitalism and western civilization is actually a death cult yes definitely it's a very spooky <laughs> I, I but a very that. oblique book mm-hmm. also uh what yeah. also a very weird kind of one of his earlier he actually he dabbled in sci-fi i did not know this but he wrote kind of an interesting little i don't know it sounds like it might be a novel in 1976 a comic novel called ratner's star and it's the story of a child prodigy mathematician who arrives at a secret installation to work on the problem of deciphering a mysterious message that appears to come from outer space. The, the oh, novel has been described as famously impenetrable. And it wow, was structured Ratner after Alice's... Never, wow, I'm kind of interested to read that. Um, makes me think of, of uh, Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner, that boy prodigy who got into NYU film school at 16 and was mentored by Meyer Lansky. And then also, hmm. like, every other gifted child prodigy that we've talked about recently. And, you know, like, the what was that novel, uh, you know, about buying a boy that was... We talked about yes, with Jimmy. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm, yes, I, I, yeah, we were talking about the child buyer. Uh, yes, right. the child buyer. So, so yeah, be, this actually uh, is interesting. interesting. This is a review of Ratner's Star that I found just Googling Ratner's Star on Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. It mentions uh, Kurt Vonnegut or uh, sort of, you know, alludes to Kurt Vonnegut, which relates to, uh, I think, a question that we got in an earlier Q&A. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, Billy Pilgrim, meet Billy Twillig. No Vonnegutian, unstuck in time traveler, but another lugubrious, pubescent hero beset by strange experiences having to do with extraterrestrial contact and space-time distortion. DeLillo's Billy is a 14-year-old, Bronx-bred mathematical genius, recipient of the Nobel Prize, who is summoned to a huge computer radio telescope complex called Space Brain to decode a cryptic message received from the vicinity of Ratner's star. The author of Americana and Endzone has invented a futuristic, surrealist research institute where the beauty and terror of pure science meets the absurdity of bureaucratic science and the paranoia of corporate applied science. Billy must dodge the attempts of a secret Honduran-slash-Germanic cartel led by Elux Troxel, who speaks Latinic garble, and Gerbeck, who smells like a foot and speaks speed writing, to wire his brain to space brain for purposes of profit. He must also elude the seductions of pneumatic female colleagues and the nameless perils of a knowledge which has driven one eminent colleague to live in a hole and eat worms, another into fits of narcolepsy. 
Don DeLillo's novel pirouettes madly at the new slash ancient intersection of science and mysticism, simultaneously participating in and parodying our most modern discoveries, that we are as primitive as ever in the face of the expanded unknown, and that all knowledge curves back boomerang like on the south. It is a novel to be read not for plot, rambling, obscure, nor for character, a thousand loony variations on the author, but for prose. DeLillo's enraptured aria to the twin Kabbalah of mathematics and language, an arc after dazzling arc of words. Cool. Wow. Okay. We might have to read that. <laughs> that <is a> <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to read on that there. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, wow. You know what? I think he went to. Did he? Oh, no. He, well, I guess he went to Fordham. But then he he did publish his first short story in Cornell University's literary magazine, Epoch. Mm-hmm. So I thought for a second that he'd gone to uh, to Cornell, you know, same as Pynchon. But he's actually, he grew up a working class Italian family in the Bronx. Yeah. And uh, nothing particularly, yeah, nothing particularly spot. Uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, yeah, no, the, the Bradner Star was favorably compared to the works of Thomas Pynchon. Um, somebody called mm-hmm. it a conceptual monster. Yeah, the, uh, the picaresque story of a 14-year-old math genius who joins an international consortium of mad scientists decoding an alien message, and his name was Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, and know. Cosmopolis, which became a De Palma movie, no, right? Cronenberg. Oh, no, Cronenberg. Cro- Cronenberg. 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 Yeah, that was Cronenberg. Cronenberg, yeah. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll still get to talk about that if we ever do Cronenberg, but... Yeah. yeah, very interesting. And uh, yeah, George Will uh, did these call these little known Delillo books, Mao Two and Ratner Star, ones that I'm both I'm very intrigued by uh, because yeah, I, I'm a bit familiar with the more well known ones. Uh, yeah, like mm-hmm. White Noise and Underworld, but these ones are a bit obscure. It is interesting that he was on the cusp of the whole like te- you know this is in 1991 that he wrote Mao Two. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, before 9-11 and everything, and uh, it was Maoist terrorists who were the sort of key terrorists in the, in the novel. Um, Interesting. Although he later... And also an ex-member of the yeah. Unification Church, the Moonies, are wrapped up in it. And, yeah, this this novel was, uh, was praised by Thomas Pynchon. So yeah, no, we could do a little Delillo. I think I think he could, you know, and and I think his whatever his yeah. literary take on Lee. I do have Libra here, so I could read that and see. Kind of curious to see what his uh, his take, though. I, I I suspect I won't ultimately agree with it, but it still might be good, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, I I would support yeah. things like that, like kind of like literary explorations of these like huge conspiracies and. I mean, I think, yeah, he yeah, probably does have Yeah, he seems a, to, to be very extent. into a lot of the topics that I can see why we asked this question. Because, uh, yeah, there's also Zero K, which is about uh, a billionaire who wants to cryogenically preserve himself. Um, okay, so that's uh, another kind of Epstein synchronicity yeah. right there. Or I don't know if he was, like, refreshed. Yes. I mean, it said that the, the Ratner star was maybe autobiographical. I wonder if he was brought into a gifted children program yeah, in the Bronx. Yeah, did he get a call on a God Sarf- phone, maybe? Yeah, wasn't, wasn't Jack Sarfati from the Bronx? I believe he was. Uh, I believe so, yeah. And he and was, yeah, let me see, 36. They might have actually been, holy shit, they, they might have been like, he was born in 36, so he might have been two or three years older than Sarfati, right? Wasn't Sarfati born in like 39? Hmm. I'm looking up if there are any connections between them right now, just to see. Uh, he know, was born in 39, yeah, but, uh, 
I'm just looking up if they've been the same breath together. It doesn't seem like anything really comes up, though. Uh, but I, I straight up got a... It looks like there aren't any great matches for your search when I search those two names together. All right, Google, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's hmm. uh, Yeah, it doesn't really look like any any real hits. Uh, yeah, I guess they're both... Oh, Italian you know what? American. Well, wait, wait a minute. They're both Italian. Hmm. Yes, they're both Italian. They're both Italian in the Bronx, born three years apart from each other. And he wrote a novel about he wrote an autobiographical novel about being like a a math whiz who gets taken to like an evil secret government uh, factory or facility to talk to aliens. He doesn't quite say he got, you know, a a call on the God phone or anything. But well, maybe he does. We haven't read the book, you know. There might be. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, we just read the summary. I just typed in Donald Little of God phone because I just I, I got to know. I got to know. <laughs> nothing I can see right now. But maybe he just puts it in his fiction. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, quite possible. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah, well, he yeah. Might well, be the, the low key Willie Schreiber, uh, you know, not wanting to come out and say it's all true. Exactly. Exactly. Even Pynchon, for that matter. What if he got what if he got the God phone call, but like said no? And then he wondered for the rest of his life, yeah. like, what the hell that was. I mean, did, did somebody call. say, yeah, did anybody say no to the God phone? And then what happened to them? I'd be curious. I assume I if know, they cared yeah. enough to call you on the God phone, they would probably follow up or try to get you. They wouldn't just give up if you were like, who's this weirdo? No, I don't believe. You know what I mean? Well, so. I think that uh, Jack Sarfati... Uh, even said that he didn't quite remember what he was even asked. He just knew that he said yes. Uh, yeah. And Which I wonder is, if Daniel Stevens said something similar, but yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, yeah, I think mm. it warrants further investigation. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, jumping. Uh, right, were there any? Jumping mm. ahead here. To yeah. Well, Thirteen. Yeah. You want to read that? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, Sphinx walkthrough asks SJ. Any thoughts on the Chupacabra? Um, we'll definitely do a Chupacabra episode. We're doing basically every cryptid. We're, you know, doing a march to the cryptid institutions. I mean, Chupacabra mm-hmm. was a big cryptid when I was young in the 90s. That was one of the, yeah. you know, uh, banner cryptids uh, that you would hear about. That was one of the marquee cryptids. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, you know, I, the Chupacabra, what's unique about it to me is that it's connected to the animal mutilations, you know, what would happen, Mm. the predation of the chupacabra and the animal mutilations by UFOs are kind of the same. I guess it's a similar thing to the Mothman in that there's a vampirism aspect and there's also a, uh, you know, UFO aspect. Kind of interdimensional, kind of in a Mothman kind of way. Yeah, uh, definitely a Mothman type thing. But there's also uh, uh, the unique aspect, of course, is the, uh, that it's, you know, uh, I think it first emerged in, in Puerto Rico, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, in 1995. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I guess that makes sense why it was such a big cryptid in the 90s, because it was a relatively new one. Uh, I, guess, I guess it's rooted in older emerging. traditions uh, or in well, the Americas. Well, yeah, I mean, of course. But, Well, yeah. I guess the idea of vampirism, similar to what we kind of talked about in our Dogman episode with the Beast of Bray Road, where it was first, you know, there was a little bit of satanic, appropriate reaction occurring around uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the deaths of these farm animals, right? And that reminds yeah. me of what John Keel said about uh, the animal mutilations, that you, people would see these hairy creatures taking these things off, and then it would create this whole pile over everything where they would be associated with these hairy beasts, but 
he suspected that maybe something, you know, much more sinister was going on or, you know, much more uh, occultic, maybe. Or yeah, satanic, you're right. Uh, you're right. Yeah, happening. people that initially thought that connection. it was, right? Like, people thought yeah. that there... Or I, I guess, I, in let's see, in... In Mocha, Puerto Rico, in 1975, there were killings of farm animals. Uh, then they were attributed to El Vampiro de Mocha, the vampire of Mocha. Initially, it was suspected <laughs> yes. the, the killings were committed by a satanic cult. Later, more killings were reported on the island, and many farms reported loss of animal life. Each of the animals was reported to have had its body bled dry through a series of small circular incisions so that's interesting because you know there's a big military installation and you know testing range in puerto rico so you got a big military presence it's u.s territory 1975 the dawn of the aeon of set was just proclaimed mm -hmm. and you yeah, know true. i mean it's kind of you know it, it, it it's interesting that people initially went towards the satanic cult explanation and then later they thought oh it's like a chupacabra it's aliens it's something else whereas Actually, a satanic cult actually sounds like a more grounded explanation than, you know, not to discount the chupacabra entirely, but you know what I mean. Like, it's uh, it could be some people that extract the blood out of a cow. That's not an impossible thing to do and do it in a creepy way. No, it's That's not. It's serious. Yeah, yeah, and that, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, we should re you should refer to our Mothman episode for that passage having to do with blood, because Mothman did have a sort of vampiric aspect to him as well that's uh, less appreciated, um, and, you know, a UFO connection similar to um, the, the Chupacabra, and uh, John Keel had an interesting passage that was about, like, the connection between the idea of satanic blood sacrifice rituals and animal mutilations and some of these cryptids because that's a animal mutilation is an interesting kind of triangular thing where it has that association of the occult ufos and cryptids uh mm -hmm. and particularly the cubicabra is the number one animal mutilation cryptid you know uh, yeah that is the premier animal mutilation cryptid and a really scary so one. actually i mean it's like kind of a reptoid it's you yeah, know, it's it, kind of a reptile. I remember like visiting Puerto Rico like at some point in the nineties and seeing like, you know, it was a thing, like a tourist thing where I saw like, you know, cardboard cutouts of chupacabra and stuff like that, you know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Apparently they tracked down the original eyewitness uh to the chupacabra. Her name was Madeline Tolentino Canovanas, a town in the east of Puerto Rico. In 1995, she reported the alien creature, uh, seeing it outside her window. There's a guy, I guess an author, named uh, Radford, uh, Benjamin Radford, and he wanted to mm -hmm. track down the chupacabra. He decided to write a book about this, and uh, you know he tracked down the original witness, and he approached the chupacabra with an open mind, employing what he calls investigative skepticism, and he says, of course, I was initially skeptical of the creature's existence, but at the same time, I was mindful that new animals have yet to be discovered. But he talks about how certain, you know, hairless animals with mange got identified as a cupacabra because they've lost their hair. He had a couple of interesting takes on it. He said that, uh, that maybe it had to do with anti-U.S. sentiment. Hmm. So he said, uh, when an animal dies, the heart and blood pressure stop. The blood seeps to the lowest part of the body and it coagulates and thickens. It's called lividity and it gives the illusion they've been drained of blood. So if all the mythology surrounding the chupacabra actually comes down to some fairly commonplace natural phenomena, 
why do stories uh, live on with such vehemence today? Basically, his hmm. argument was that, like, these animals were dying uh, of some kind of natural causes, uh, that they would just uh, be the victims of ordinary predators, and then uh, they would seem to it have would no appear that they were puncture marks just naturally. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, yeah. he felt well, that yeah. uh, it might have something to do with the anti-U.S. sentiment found across Latin America. It is particularly true in Puerto Rico, which is an unusual position because of the non-state territory of the U.S. I spoke to several Puerto Ricans who felt that the U.S. had exploited, shortchanged, and ignored the island in economic and in many other ways. He yeah. says, well, that's true. Uh, so that has made them irrational and believe in false chupacabras. No, he didn't say that, but, you know. Uh, no, uh, yeah, as for chupacabras, there are many Puerto Ricans who believe they are another indication of American exploitation and meddling. The result of top-secret U.S. scientific experiments taking place in the El Yunque rainforest, not far from Tolentino's hometown. I'm going um, with that. I'm going with that. Yeah, the chupacabra yeah, is a chimera um, created by the U.S. military. Yes, this is uh, what his take was, which I kind of don't like. He said that, you know, what might uh, explain the initial sightings? Having explained away the mysterious specimens and how they might operate, what does Radford think inspired Tolentino to come up with such a story in the first place? Radford noticed that Tolentino's 1995 description was similar to the alien from the 1995 movie Species, (laughs) uh, which had recently been released in Puerto Rico and which he had watched. The film was set in the present day, revolves around top-secret U.S. scientific experiments, and was partly filmed in Puerto Rico. It's all there. She sees the movie, then later she sees something she mistakes for a monster, says Radford. While he's careful to clarify he does not think any witnesses are lying, he does suggest the sighting could simply be the result of an overactive imagination. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. I feel like if you're an adult, this is kind of like, you know, like uh, a little bit like racist to think that like i cannot imagine like uh i mean my mom once did call the cops on the meter man thinking that he was trying to break into her house but you know she didn't <laughs> think he was a chupacabra you know i feel like it's uh you know um, uh, I, if you're I an feel adult I, you're not I, gonna hallucinate yeah. chupacabra because you saw a movie you know you're not gonna um feel i like feel kind of the same way as like uh, you know saying that the ucla archaeologist got so excited about like the possibility of finding a tunnel that he just like foolishly like declared that there was a tunnel when there wasn't you know i think you know i mean maybe we should uh, yeah well trust, that's uh, different in a way because a tunnel <laughs> well this is a little bit different because a tunnel is like you know plausible or like you know normal whereas like i Fair guess enough. you know but why would you think like the being from species would be real? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, that's a real leap it, of. It's just kind of a thing of like, yeah, oh, I bet they like, were just silly. You weren't and that's expecting why. to see like it's not like you're like, oh, I saw the movie Species, so you know oh, okay, now yeah, it's yeah, normal yeah. for me to expect that I might see you know. Whereas it's yeah, slightly true. It's a little more slightly of a, different. A leap. You have to be quite yeah. There has to be and some other kind of motive to just. You know, uh, I don't uh, know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm it's not kind of like the put... Betty and Barney Hill thing, where it's like, oh, there's an episode. You know, you can always find some. This is another sci-fi psyop aspect. You can always find some sci-fi property that's gonna have something roughly matching any you know gin that anybody sees. So at any time, <laughs> if you just want to write something True. off, it, like if it's sufficient to dismiss it, to say that like, oh, there was another being that was seen there's other like depicted like this in a movie you know then there's always going to be something like that no matter yeah. what you're always going to be able to find like wrap around eyes whatever someone says you know whatever they see 
there's always going to be yeah. something like that in a movie. Glowing red eyes. Even if it's so. like a, you know, a nameless force beyond space and time or something, you know, that like, uh, it's like, oh, it sounds similar to descriptions that were in uh, H.P. Lovecraft. So, like, you know, like, oh, he well, said it what had if that's uh, tr- What if that's dimen- true because it's, dimensions they're all real. And, you know. You know. Yeah, like, I definitely if, heard what that. What if that's true because that they're all real and not because they're all fake? Hmm. Exactly. That, yeah. you know, this is all limited hangout. Yeah, they're all real. The muse. Where where do our ideas come from? I don't know. That's too deep. But uh, yeah. So you know. Well, you I mean, know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna dismiss you. Any matruha meanings are scattered on the road. You know, no one makes up ideas. They're out there to be found. It's all about the form that the ideas come into. And sometimes they appear Ooh. in the form of a man. Sometimes they appear in the form of a chupacabra. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, okay. So um, I mean, question, we can. Uh, yeah. yeah. The next question is a little uh, bit I, weird, because okay. the person requested that it not actually be read in the form that it is written. <laughs> Do you want to read first? Do you want to read first what they requested us to only say? Yes, but I don't think that we should read what they wrote, you know, to honor their request, right? They requested us to only say, <laughs> right? We shouldn't disrespect There's their There's so request. many good questions. There's so many good questions in here, though. How, how could we possibly? Well, uh, you know, well, you know what? Grotto, no, fine, fine. Can. We'll play the game. We'll, you're right. We'll play the game. You know, let's be like they said. They asked pretty nicely. They said, "Don't do this." So, like, we should, right? I guess they didn't okay. say please, but they did ask. You know, so I feel like we should. Yeah. Honor. yeah anyway, no, no. Uh, we'll, we'll honor. So it. Yeah. So just, I guess, you know, say aquatic what. Aquatic you know, ape? Question mark. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> I had never heard of the aquatic ape uh, or the aquatic ape theory before, and you know, I I did look it up, and I guess you know, there's a whole theory about this that i guess involves the water side hypothesis of human evolution which is that you know some ancestors of modern humans uh became adapted to an aquatic habitat and that's why we're bipedal and we lost our hair i guess is the gist of it yes mm-hmm. or do you know anything about the aquatic right. ape theory I've definitely heard of this come up, like, around, like, mermaid stuff. I, I think that originally, like, when it was floated, it was meant to be a bit more serious than that. Uh, it's reminding me mm-hmm. of this, this like, TikTok I saw recently where this, like, bizarre dude is, like, in the middle of a forest. And it starts with him just taking, like, a sudden step towards the camera and just, like, staring directly into it and saying, like, there is no such thing as a coincidence. If you're watching this video, this means that you have an energetic connection with me and Aquafarians. But you may know them as mermaids. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think I posted it in the grotto, maybe. But yeah, like uh, I've definitely uh, heard the aquatic ape thing come up because then you know if human beings you know evolved to be like an aquatic ape or that we came out of the ocean or something, then maybe there are still aquatic apes out there, you know. But I don't even think I that know, was necessarily yeah. the key idea of the aquatic ape. Well, I guess maybe it is because. You know, according uh, in 1942, German pathologist Max Westenhofer. Uh, okay, 1942. Um, 1942, uh, saying, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah, German pathologist Max Westenhofer. Wow, Max Westenhofer. Uh, he contributed to the development of uh, anatomic pathology and the reform of public health in Chile. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. Yes. Wonder how he ended up yes. there. Weird. Uh, hmm. Apparently, he was there even before. Um, he uh, was the know, deputy he, chair. Yeah, he just uh, maybe it had something to do with him being the deputy chairman of the uh, the Berlin Gesellschaft für Rassenhygiene, uh, the German Society <laughs> for Racial yes. Hygiene. Maybe. Um, mm-hmm. 
Wow. Okay. So he yes. was big. Uh, uh, once again, these Nazis with the hottest like cryptid takes and UFO takes. Yeah, they have very hot cryptic takes. This is also kind of like a. This is an interesting like, uh, Welt like or slash Atlantis thing, like world ice theory. Because, uh, you know, this is kind of closing the, the circle of Atlantis, where it's like, oh, hey, we got, you know, mermaids now. We got the aquatic apes. Maybe Atlantis has always been underwater. But we just need to combine the Velt the Atlantis stuff, with the aquatic ape theory uh, stuff to get the the real mermaids. But uh, So, so he, he popularized this during, at the height of World War II, right? Yeah, because, you know, humans have hair, we're hairless, we have subcutaneous fat. We have regressed noses, I guess, and we have slightly webbed fingers, you know, mm-hmm. so he was like, uh, he didn't believe human beings were ape, and he thought it was during the Cretaceous, so he basically thought that human beings came out of the oceans, but I guess he later abandoned the concept, probably because, like, the SS were like, this is too wacky, and also, <laughs> like, we descended from the clouds with, the, with our tall white brethren. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Do not say not we came from under the, the sea. Uh, exactly. Yeah, or maybe they were concerned that maybe he had quote unquote abandoned the idea because they were letting them on to like their undersea bases and things where they were hanging out in their flugel rods and everything. Could be. Yeah, I guess there was another guy, uh, Alistair Hardy, who mm-hmm. developed the idea of that, like you know, apes had to compete. Well, you know, they couldn't compete with people in the trees, so they branched off to. Uh, do you deal with, uh, you know, aquatic pr- uh, food sources, you know, like shellfish. And that was like kind of, you know, a little bit of a more boring idea. That doesn't seem like a full-blown aquatic ape. That seems like kind of a, a littoral ape. The yeah, that doesn't, ape feel, it doesn't feel like a mermaid. That's like, you know, you're just a, like a seaside, you know, person. Like you're, I don't know. Doesn't feel. I don't know if it'd be like enough to like you know make you lose all your hair and maybe be bipedal because you have to walk around or something like waist high in the water. I guess. I don't know. Like I guess bears do that because they hunt in the river or something. Yeah, I mean you'd think we wouldn't get all pruny and stuff. Yeah, yeah. If I don't we were know. meant yeah, to like yeah. sit in the water for hours at a time. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we used to not get as pruny. We were more calloused or something. Just you know, a, a yeah. modern thing. Um, yeah, I don't I know. I mean, I guess I, now this is just kind of like you know, David Attenborough. I guess did a special on 2016 called "The Waterside Ape," which is really more like the idea that oh, you know, when we got closer to the water and we interact with the water more, then we kind of lost our hair. Maybe you know that would maybe make hmm. sense. But interesting. Well, David know, Attenborough also of, is like an overpopulation kind of sus lord, so. You know, kind of hates hates humanity. He thinks humanity's a shit, and we're you know ruining it for the ants and the meerkats or whatever the fuck he makes documentaries about. Sorry, not to be anti-animal, but you know he's us. Um, and interesting, interestingly, he would like endorse the aquatic ape. Uh, well, yeah, you know, he, I, yeah. I mean, I guess. Well, this is uh, you know there perhaps in the question part of the question that I didn't read there was a little bit of. Uh, discussion about the idea of evolution in general which i think is a very interesting thing and you can something a theme that you can trace through the whole podcast and all the discussions that we've had which is that you know the idea of evolution is probably the most important idea 
uh, you know, or one of the most important ideas uh, in like intellectual history since like, the nineteenth century. It's not just Darwinian yeah. evolution, but the idea mm-hmm. of evolution. Period. Like the uh, in As the a process. Like you can yeah. with Blavatsky. Yes, exactly. Process philosophy, perhaps. Right. Mm, like uh, okay. I guess you know maybe this is probably like Hegelian in some way. You know, uh, process philosophy in the broad sense. Like even Blavatsky even though she's very anti-evolution, she has an idea of evolution. Like uh, George Bernard Shaw's play, you know, about man in, in 10,000 years and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, what, what is it? I think Man and Superman. They're, yeah, no, that's a that's different a, one. Uh, an H.G. Wells, yeah. yeah. What, was his, uh, what was his one that was... Oh, I think it was Back mm-hmm. to Methuselah. Yeah, um, back to Methuselah. That was one like, you know, human beings just, like, focus hard enough and then they're able to evolve into being uh, super intelligent beings that, uh, you know, are, like, thought clouds or or whatever. Uh, So, you know, there was... Kind of the the secret meets, you know, full transhumanism or I don't know what. Well, yeah, like, the whole idea of evolution, like, which was very not formalized, like, Darwin's ideas are not, like, totally commensurate with what we think about evolution now. And I think there's still, like, a little bit of dissent around, like, the idea of of evolution and how it actually works. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea, like, created, like, a revolution. The idea that human beings come from apes at all, whether aquatic or not, is a huge, uh, you know, transformation that was, yeah, incredibly impactful that I think people just do not appreciate what a big deal it was people to contemplate this idea that really opened the floodgates of like new ideas uh, esotericism spiritualism etc and a huge ton of controversy and that that was something that you know in uh in the blue beam paradigm where you know you uncover a bunch of artifacts and somehow disprove every religion that was something that mm-hmm. really was like you know obviously our religions have adapted so uh i still am very dismissive of this idea that you know, uh, and our religions are still true in the case of Islam. So I'm very dismissive of this idea that, you know, it was, it was as soon as we discover aliens or like something like that, you know, <laughs> like this, that's dumb. That's not true. But, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it even, was even, something that did even create the a great, huge ideological explosion. Yeah. Um, the great Lenin was, so yeah. was wrong in that prediction of, uh, I think he was right on how to treat them, but he thought just like, trust, trust the plan. Like in 30 years, like people are just going to stop believing in this shit. It didn't quite, it didn't quite yeah. get down like that. So I think, yeah, I think the idea that, you know, evolution or its offshoots are going to like debunk, um, any kind of wider, or they're going to provide the whole narrative that makes, Religious beliefs, uh, kind of, you know, totally obsolete and unnecessary or discredited. Uh, I don't see that happening. And I think I, I am curious about kind of the blank spots that don't get talked about a lot. Uh, I mean, evolution is taught in school and it's kind of a consensus, but you're right that there's there's still like gaps and things that like we don't quite understand super well, whether it's about like the process itself or about our particular mm-hmm. evolution as homo sapiens. And yes, I don't know. It definitely. did, it did open those definitely. doors up. Yeah. Yeah. And it did open those doors yeah. up, I guess maybe with all these people, like the idea that since we evolved all the way from monkeys, then perhaps we can evolve further into something yes even greater yeah yeah and people didn't even quite under like get like you know yeah they thought that maybe like i do find an interesting idea related to the aquatic ape thing that like dolphins you know they are like choosing you know because of course it is true 
that w- the ancestors of dolphins were uh, land ungulates or something. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they were, yeah. were like quadrupedal land creatures. And I do, I've always found it interesting. I mean, it is kind of like a little bit of a romanticism, but it's interesting the idea that dolphins like chose to go to yeah. the sea. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> it's but great. I love that it. is something that people that people thought would, you know, be like, you know, humans could just be like, well, you know, there's techniques of evolution or something, you know, like we can harness mm-hmm. them. We can make ourselves evolve, you know, just like the Atlanteans. We can use our minds to turn a bat into a giant bat that, can talk or something i don't know you know like something like that uh yeah yeah Um, it's it's super interesting so Um, i mean the connection between mankind and the sea is very interesting in general you know you have like freud and the whole idea of oceanic feeling and uh you know the the like the we you know we do grow in water we grow in the amniotic fluid and everything so mm -hmm. you know uh Mm -hmm. allah says you know he created us from from water and we are 75 percent water I mean, but that's, that's right. not really unique to humans versus other apes. But, you know, yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting. And we, you know, I think I, the idea that, like, we lost hair to make travel through water more convenient, like, does make some sense. Uh, it could be. I mean, there's other reasons yeah. I can think of for hair loss, maybe. Because I think originally we had to run. We had to, like, run down our prey and uh, stuff. So mm-hmm. maybe having a bunch of hair would make it harder to run, more wind resistance, maybe. So... Uh, yeah. whereas apes don't really necessarily do that uh like they don't have to like do long distance running uh so that's one thing that that comes to mind but yeah and in terms of yeah i mean i can think of the dolphins hydroplaning to help fishermen as a kind of symbiotic relationship so maybe uh another instance of co-evolution like with with the dogs perhaps you know the the aquatic ape maybe yeah we, we converged maybe we are you know i saw on wikipedia looking up the aquatic ape just now some people tut-tutting the idea that some mm-hmm. were circulating that humans were related to dolphins, but maybe, you know, maybe we are in the distant past. Maybe we're, we're actually brothers. I mean, we are both mammals, so, mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, guess we, are. we, you know, yeah. yeah very intelli- All right. uh, intelligent, well, so. If we ever do yeah, mermaids, which we will do, you know, yes, uh, we, we definitely to. will do mermaids eventually. Maybe we'll come back to the aquatic ape stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. So, then we can move on here to number 15 we've got two more questions so uh from uh from rt asks uh remember reading somewhere about an alan watts esselin joe rogan connection but can't remember where did it ever get covered on an episode well people will have heard our episode by now but yeah you will now have heard of our kpf episode where we talked a lot about alan watts uh we Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily talk Mm -hmm. about the joe rogan connection but that is interesting because joe rogan is like a super influential like radio audio youtube media personality in the same way you know very different vibe where he's not giving like you know these placid monologues about the east uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, he still like, is, you know, bro, I watched yeah. that. Yeah. He's kind of, yeah, it's instead, true. But, yeah. They do have but, se- certain convergences, but yeah, he's kind of he, like a, a weird tuning fork for a bunch of different reactionary philosophies. Uh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I think that, um, he's mentioned Alan Watts a lot and, you know, I mean, he talks about ayahuasca and everything yeah i think both like the presence because we don't i don't know it's like we don't actually think about alan watt or i think maybe at this point a lot of people don't fully think about him as like a radio host like a kpfa radio host you know 
and no. that's pretty much how he established like a himself. Master on a mountaintop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like maybe. Uh, oh, maybe he went yeah. on KPFA, but like no, no, no. He was like he had his own show and everything. And Joe Rogan is doing something very similar to maybe kind of like in a way like Pacifica Radio or KPFA in general in terms of being like an alternative radio platform. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is seemingly kind dark of dark web. Well, yeah, 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 and and kind of you know he always actually even okay it's interesting actually for a second to think about Joe Rogan and like the philosophy of like Lewis Hill and KPFA and their staunch instead he's like Joe Rogan's not definitely not like a pacifist but he sees himself as like an open-minded dude who like cares about like spiritual shit and like being a good fucking person yeah and like i don't know doing it and but he's he's very big about kind of like pro free speech and talking to anybody with any kind of different ideas even though he tends to talk more to like right wing (laughs) like fucking military people or like tech people or something like that but ostensibly he's kind of like you know there's some things on the right there's some things on the left like he's his own kind of fairness doctrine in, embodied right. in one person Absolutely. and he will have like extreme yeah. personalities on that might not get platformed elsewhere like he'll still have like alex berenson on who's you know seen as like absolutely unacceptable by like kind of you know the mainstream media for like his his covid views or he'll have alex jones on and people will get pissed off just yeah. like how the K- how kpfa had on like the daughters of the american revolution and the john birch society and things like that yeah. And he's also got this kind of like, even though he's like a Boston dude who, you know, was in L.A. for years, like he still has a little bit of that like new age woo woo kind of KPFA vibe going on too. talking about Terrence McKenna Definitely. and well, DMT. Yeah, smoking weed all on the air, which uh, KPFA yep. uh, uh-huh. pioneered. Yeah, he's always smoking weed. Yeah. Yeah, and he um, has mentioned uh, he's mentioned Alan Watts a number of times, and is like a big fan of him. And I keep I'm sure finding a lot of like that's exactly the yeah. kind of yeah. I know there's some people out there who are like into Joe Rogan, but I just like don't like yeah. I, I like you know because like he's in good faith or whatever, or like he's a chill guy. Like ever since Joe Rogan had Gavin McInnes on, and he was talking about how like Muslims are inbred and like therefore they're stupid, and Joe Rogan was like, bro. I'm looking up this on Google and like, look at this, look at the IQ of like, it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, you know, uh, so I just don't like that shit. Like I have no fondness or like uh, appreciation for Joe Rogan at all. Yeah. I just can't like get behind that type of thing where you're just like such an ignorant fool that like whatever someone comes on, you're just going to take whatever they say. You know, I understand being polite, but like, you know, and I understand being dumb, but anyway yeah i guess i found a reddit post i mean yeah i've listened to him occasionally like when but usually it's like almost like oppo research like whenever he has any jacobson on or something uh the alex jones ones are kind of like what's the esseling connection to joe rogan though because like i'd see the alan watts sort of similarity but uh that's a good question let me just type that in real quick uh matthew north um joe rogan expose on uh, from the tin foil hat Pod, Joe um, Rogan exposed CIA Elon Musk maps Esalen military MK Ultra. This is something that came, a bit shoot uh, link that came up with all these taglines. Uh, wow. Uh, yes. Oh, this person's citing a uh, Yon Irvin. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna pull back. Uh, from that. But mm. yeah, I know I see that. Yeah, Joe Rogan exposed CIA. Um, it's funny if you type in yeah, just like Esalen Joe Rogan. It's all like it like batshit articles from like weird websites that are yelling about. Hmm. Uh, Voices of Esalen. Interesting. Okay, no, I think that's that's a little different. 
Yeah, uh, hmm. Yeah, there's the I, Ultra, MK Ultra, Brave New World, triple parentheses, IDW. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what's really going on here, but... If Joe if, isn't faking as a hardcore dramatic, he probably won't be able to do the show for too much longer. He'll age rapidly if he truly is trying to become Timothy Leary Volume 2 as spun by Jones. I think that's related to the so-called Esalen Institute conspiracy theory. The deep state also likes the phrase cultural Marxism. It's proverbial historic right-wing conspiracy, which by nature fractures quite a bit of the population. Maybe Jill will respond. Uh, so I guess he's saying Alex was censored because he was exposed as a disinfo agent. The more they pushed him, the more obvious his, uh, his shtick was vindicated. The conspiracy pertained to conspiracy theory in itself. Hmm, okay, so interesting. Mm. Uh, yeah, there was somebody. Uh, yeah, it seems uh, it like does, there's a little bit of discourse out there. There is a little bit, and I guess there's a guy, there's a guy Duncan Trussell, who I guess has gone on a lot, that talks about Alan Watts, and also a guy named Jason Silva, who I had to look up and see if he was related to the NLP guy, because one of those guys was named Silva. But I don't know. This guy, uh, I, apparently, he's I don't know. He's like forty. He's a Venezuelan-American TV personality, filmmaker, futurist, philosopher, and public speaker. He's hosted the National Geographic documentaries Brain Games and Origins. His goal is to use technology to excite people about philosophy and science. The Atlantic describes Silva as, quote, a Timothy Leary of the viral video age. Silva, a former presenter on Current TV, lectures internationally on topics such as creativity, spirituality, technology, and humanity. Uh, this, This sounds sus. Um... Uh, God, you know, current TV. What a talk about a uh, liberal psyop. Yeah, but, bad, man, I remember that. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I guess you know he went on. He went on years ago. Uh, he went on Joe Rogan like multiple times. So I guess he's talked a lot about Alan Watts, and yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he is. He seems to have had a pretty storied career for like starting all this in like his early 20s. And uh, he's a fellow at the Hybrid Reality Institute examining the symbiosis between man and machine. Cool. So I'm not sure what this dude's uh, deal is, but... Yeah, or something to look into uh, <laughs> if we do, like, a more proper Esalen dive. Uh, something to yeah, because the Silva uh, method... I found the it Silva hilarious. Method, it does seem like, for some reason, there's, like, a huge anti-Semitism like current in this for whatever reason maybe it's because a lot of those like intellectual dark web people who he did push like eric weinstein like barry weiss are jewish but uh you know i found this hilarious Mm -hmm. article that's like about actually comes back to robert heinlein uh and Hmm. talks about uh it's called uh is joe rogan a neoplatonist it Hmm. says joe rogan is basically a synthesis between hunter s thompson the esalen institute and the politics of robert heinlein's syncretic quote third way political philosophy whether Joe realizes it or not, is heavily influenced by Neoplatonist thinkers, either directly or by proxy. Terence McKenna, for instance, who Joe Rogan has uh, referenced uh, regarding the stoned ape theory. Yeah. Um, yeah, talk about apes. You know, yeah, blah, blah, he was blah, big blah. about the dude, they took mushrooms and they fucking got smart. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. basically, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, yeah, so I, I can't confirm that that other Silva is related to Jose Silva, who really we should do a whole episode on, because he, uh, mm-hmm. the original name of, like, the NLP, I believe, was uh, was Silva Mind Control, and it was all about hypnosis, brainwaves, and all the thing. and his, he originally started trying to do it to his children, 
to raise their IQs in the 1940s. So it sounds like another kind of uh, weird estimate, and then kind of built it into like a new religious movement. Um, I forget how it intersected with NLP, whatever. But I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, we're not really hitting anything. We'd have to look again. We're not hitting anything. I'm sure that Joe Rogan has rubbed elbows with Esalen adjacent people or like gone to Esalen. I'm, mm. I feel like he probably, like I would bet like a 97% chance he's been to Esalen. Yeah, I, I could see it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but definitely I don't have any don't have any more info on it right now. So yeah, yeah. you want to do the last yeah. one? We can move on. Yeah, Sandoz Delicid. Uh, wish I got this in before the Q and A. Well, you did. Uh, but you guys ever do a deep dive on self help gurus like Tony Robbins, for example? Dude always seems sus to me. So this is not the guy who killed a bunch of people in a sweat lodge, as I thought. That was, I guess, James Arthur Ray, whose name is, like, weirdly mm-hmm. similar to James Earl Ray. But, yeah, yeah Tony Robbins is very sus. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think yeah. we did mention him before. I almost want to do a James Arthur Ray episode before a uh, Tony Robbins episode. But, yeah, uh, Tony Robbins is definitely very sus, too. Uh, he's very he's very sus. Um yeah, I didn't realize he's actually, he must be like Serbian or something. His name is Anthony Mahavoric. Oh, and then his mom got married to Jim Robbins, and he uh, he got that. Uh, he had a, hmm, interesting. Um, he had a pituitary tumor, which uh, gave him like a really serious growth spurt, you know, when he was in high school. And uh, so, you know, his pineal gland was already getting kind of, you know, stimulated. Wow, I didn't realize he was uh, a practitioner yeah. of Ericksonian hypnosis and NLP. Yep. Cool. Yep. Exactly. And um, yeah, he was. So I remember mentioning him in an earlier episode because I believe in like the introduction to Walter Bauert's Operation Mind Control from like 1980. He mentioned a few people that like helped him sort through a lot of like his research. One of them was L. Ron Hubbard and like the Church of Scientology, who were just you know on the warpath to get the cyclos. But also he mentioned a young guy. I think he mentioned. Uh, John Grinder, the co-founder uh, of NLP, and he mentioned like Anthony Robbins as like somebody who helped out, and I was like, oh shit, that's Tony Robbins. So I realized like he was pretty deep in the game with like a lot of these people in like kind of the late seventies, and uh, started out like quite young. So yeah, he um he did uh, yeah he was practicing NLP. He started doing infomercials in like the late eighties. And then launched, like, the Leadership Academy seminars in the 90s. And he's part, he's, you know, he's been, like, a kind of a guru advisor to a lot of big people, including Bill Clinton, uh, Wayne Gretzky, Serena Williams, Hugh Jackman, and Pitbull. Wow. Even Pitbull. (laughs) He has counseled American businessman Peter Gruber and then Steve Wynn, the casino magnet who got me too'd, and Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, and I believe, like, is related to the guy who does, like, Game of Thrones um, and was in, uh, I believe, maybe in Epstein's book. Uh, Kind of forgetting right now, but, you know, very plugged in people. Uh, He's uh, named one of the top 200 business gurus for the Harvard Business press uh but then he did get me too'd in 2018 i think there were like nine women who came out and there are big articles in like vice about his kind of sexual yeah i would 100 believe that yes uh okay yeah. okay okay hold up quote hold by him about well, me too okay yeah oh, okay no, no go ahead go uh, ahead i'll i'll say after he was at a seminar in san jose uh march uh, 2018 
He said, if you use the hashtag MeToo movement to try to get significance, then certainly by attacking and destroying someone else, all you've done is basically use a drug called significance to make yourself feel good. He went on to tell a story about a, quote, very powerful man who passed on hiring a female candidate even though she was the most qualified because she was too attractive and would be, quote, too big a risk. He later posted an apology on his Facebook page. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that was uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting. Um, I did watch his, his, like, the Netflix documentary, like, Tony Robbins. I am oh, not yeah, I saw from that, 2015. I wasn't about to watch that shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was creepy. I mean, it was yeah. interesting as kind of, like, watching this guy do his thing. But uh, I, I've, I feel like the documentary, we kind of had a, you know, a slightly kind of, oh, is this guy really for real? But ultimately kind of, like, validated him and was like oh well he's just you know he's not your guru every fucking guru says that by the way every sus new age guru says they're not a guru they're not your guru etc etc okay but you know what though you know what made me just jump out of my skin a second ago which i think maybe we do we we should do like maybe a a kind of tony robbins deep dive is under the the sort of the philanthropy tab under tony robbins uh, so first of all, he started getting into the charity in the 90s. Uh, he founded the Anthony Robbins Foundation, intended to help the young, the homeless, the hungry, the elderly, and the imprisoned. That sounds good enough, right? Mm-hmm. But then uh, how about this? Robbins helped raise money for Operation Underground Railroad, a nonprofit organization that works with governments to fight against child trafficking and slavery with the assistance of former CIA, Navy SEALs, and special ops operatives. So, uh, wait, what? I had never heard of this, actually. The Operation Underground Railroad, which was founded by a guy named Timothy Ballard in, in 2013. That is, it's like O-U-R. It aids with planning, prevention, capture, and prosecution of sex offenders and sex traffickers and works with partner organizations for prevention, victim recovery, strengthened awareness, and fundraising efforts. The organization has been documented for their covert operations with jump teams consisting of former CIA agents, U.S. Special Operations Forces members, and other support volunteers. Operation Underground Railroad's ultimate goal is to eliminate sex trafficking worldwide. As of April 2020, they report 3,000 victims rescued and 182 traffickers arrested. Uh, Is Tony Robbins Q? <laughs> um no, uh, but the guy the, the guy who runs this is a guy named Timothy Ballard. Tim Ballard is the CEO. He's also the CEO of something called the Nazarene Fund and he's an author and mm-hmm. he's made a bunch of big claims about OUR and he his work includes the development of software and internet investigations specifically to infiltrate file share networks where traffickers exchange child pornography. Ballard has assisted in the training of many law enforcement officers in these procedures. He's also testified for the U.S. Congress and has re- recommended procedures and practices for rescuing children from trafficking rings. Um, and he went to uh, he grew up in California and attended Brigham Young University. Okay, so he's a Mormon, and uh, he went on a church mission to Chile, and then graduated from BYU, and then, oh my god, he graduated summa cum laude from the Monterey Institute of International Studies with a Master of Arts degree in international politics, then worked as an agent, a special agent for the Department of Homeland Security for 10 years. He worked on the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, and as an God, an undercover agent for the U.S. child sex tourism jump team. Most of his career was spent working out of the U.S.-Mexico port of entry in Calexico, California. 
with the focus on child exploitation and trafficking cases. He has briefed many world leaders on the issue of, oh my God, of child sex trafficking, including President Donald Trump in January 2019. <laughs> Is this guy cute? Uh, Holy shit. Yeah, well, we what? found him. Uh, well, it seems, yeah, his resume seems to check out. He's fighting. This guy's so sus. Like, uh, he's like a sus, like, spook, probably CIA. If you went to the Monterey Institute of International Studies, oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was maybe the institute in Monterey, California which is very spooked. Wait, no, no, it is. It is. It is in Monterey, California. It was original. It, it's actually a, an attached to Middlebury College in Vermont, but it's in Monterey, California. But they basically, this is like a training school for people who are going to become like CIA national security people. And so, you know, they, they love recruiting Mormons. And just like, I don't know, the boldness. I saw something in this other article here that there's uh, there's some criticism of them. There's a 2020 Vice investigation found that the organization employed, quote, a pattern of image burnishing and mythology building, a series of exaggerations that are, in the aggregate, quite misleading. For instance, OUR claimed that it rescued a woman named Liliana, who, according to court testimony, escaped by herself. The organization's spending also lacks transparency. You don't say. Mm. What is this? Mm. Like, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I the mean, fox guarding like, the fucking obviously hen it house. Sounds, uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I can only. I imagine. can't help but it's kind of like the rescue yeah, of the kids yeah. from Haiti. Very, uh, very pizza Katie. Uh, yeah, it's very uh, pizza Katie, and you know, this is the guy. Yeah. The master of like neurolinguistic pro- programming, mind control, and. Yeah, I remember he actually was in that movie Shallow Hal, which is one of those like really like you know wow. i know this is a, a, a cliche at this point like to say like this movie would not be made today but this really would not be made today. really wouldn't <laughs> it's like basically just like uh per, like fat jokes but the joke of the, the main joke of the movie is that jack black gets hypnotized by tony robbins oh you're to right see people's inner beauty which wow. is not something that like hypnosis would enable you to do like if you just you know to be basically it's the idea that hypnosis makes you telepathic and you can see uh people's inner beauty like without actually knowing yeah. them but you know there's a fat girl and he sees her as Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow. and so like he's yeah so he's going out with her and like he thinks he's super hot because she's beautiful on the inside but she's actually like you know the whole joke of the movie is like that she's incredibly obese uh so yes yeah. <laughs> so yeah he, he cameoed in like a bunch of movies in the 90s it's he was weird real, that he I would like he was... you know do that like creating tons of misinformation about see this is what we're talking about with hypnosis where like it feeds on the real practice of it feeds on this you know superstition around it that it has this ability to make you see like a hot girl where there's like you know when a paltrow went in a, a fat suit it make, it gives you the well, when everyone has their Neuralink device plugged into their brain, then you can like kind of yeah, project, augmented reality, like augmented yeah, reality. exactly. So you know, maybe they were predictive programming us for that. The new future, where all right, like, well, we just, yeah. this second part <laughs> of the Q and A is four hours, so let's. Yep. Uh, there we go. Let's watch. <laughs> uh, we'll yeah, wind we'll it down, but uh, sure. we yeah, will. We will. A lot of sus lords covered this week. Yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah. sussness. So, um, yeah, thanks to the Grotto again for, you know, yes, writing these queries. Always. Yeah, yes. good stuff as always. Look we got some big ones already time. lined up for next month, so see see how yes. big it gets. But mm-hmm. it's uh, it's good stuff. So, 
yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's it. That's it for now. And uh, until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Hey, that's what I'ma do to this one. We can talk about bread. We can talk about gang. Talk about stress. We can talk about rain. Talk about pride. We can talk about shame. That's what I'ma do to this one. We can talk about life. We can talk about pain. Talk about fiends. We can talk about gang. Talk about rap. We can talk about fame. That's what I'ma do to this one. We can talk about hands. We can talk about straps talk about dreams we can talk about laps talk about friends we can talk about rats that's what i'ma do to this one we can talk about hoes we can talk about max talk about lies we can talk about facts talk about this we can talk about that that's what i'ma do to this one this one be the top to the spasm three grams in a whip in a stack of it watch as a breeze right past the vision Every single bar is a cataclysm. Say I like vision, but my eyes look real low. Crush every pill slow, I'ma get the bill roll. Try to put me all up in the ground, but I still grow. Man, cause he only hand threes like a field girl. Her brain is a six, but she look like a model. Pain was a gift till I took a full throttle. Now my reality's crooked and hollow. Three till I can't even look at the bottle. Hit a little weed just to even out mentally. Overthink everything, nothing makes sense to me. I am a Leo and that is my tendency. Two bars academy regenerate my energy. My flow sounds classically trained. Shouts to the dome like Kennedy. I got that accurate aim. Out on the patio smoking and drinking and yelling out clacking this game. Off of a fifth of that crown in the sack full of cane. Out on the patio smoking and drinking and yelling out clacking this game. Off of a fifth of that crown in the sack full of cane. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about bread, we can talk about gang. Talk about stress, we can talk about rain. Talk about pride, we can talk about shame. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about life, we can talk about pain. Talk about fiends, we can talk about cane. Talk about rap, we can talk about fame. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about hands, we can talk about straps. Talk about dreams, we can talk about laps. Talk about friends, we can talk about rats. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about hoes, we can talk about max. Talk about lies, we can talk about facts. Talk about this we can talk about that that's what i'ma do to this one this one yeah you pull up at the bar got the tall bitch nervous yeah they don't be walking up like they talking man they all lip service yeah endo is not like these rappers they ain't give me 10 feet yeah must be the leo and the low can be pain hurt till the remy hit sweet yeah only a sucker would say that it's hard to be honest let the great northwest in this bitch my cigar is the bombest we're ducking through the alley in the dark to the car me and thomas had the black car heart just like mikey clark in the convict yeah the drugs come cheap and the murder come fast every res look like the front of skid row big bro hit me when i come and get blowed everybody look funny when my money get low it's facts yeah, I earn what I got going hard in the trenches. Guys with the stars on their cars trying to lynch us. Put me in the cage, but the bars are defenseless. What? Big pun intended if you catch those. Everybody ain't keeping up with the prodigy. Need to change the shoes before the show, bitch. Mr. Rogers, puff on a lot of tree. Put the ink to the scroll, let them follow me. You can cry, you can bite, you can rap. Put the blow with the mescaline, ketamine, acid, and put it all in the same sack. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about bread, we can talk about gang. Talk about stress, we can talk about rain. Talk about pride, we can talk about shame. That's what I'ma do to this one. This one. Yeah, talk about life. We can talk about pain. Talk about fiends. We can talk about cane. Talk about rap. We can talk about fame. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about hands. We can talk about straps. Talk about dreams. We can talk about laps. Talk about friends. We can talk about rats. That's what I'ma do to this one. Yeah, talk about hoes. We can talk about max. Talk about lies. We can talk about facts. Talk about this. We can talk about that. That's what I'ma do to this one.